Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. removed from the first Republican presidential primary debate. We're just a few more hours removed from America's mayor posting a $150,000 bond after uh, after turning himself in in Fulton County, Georgia. In a few hours from now, we will see President Trump do that same thing. And uh, we he also obviously had a big sit down with Tucker Carlson that aired on the social media network formerly known as Twitter yesterday. Uh, your uh, the Brigosian, the former head of the Wag- the Wagner Group in Russia, a mercenary group that was not just in Russia and Belarus but was making inroads towards Africa. He has been killed in a plane crash. A lot of questions about all that. We're going to get into that in a big way throughout the course of the next four hours. Brian Kilmeade is going to join me a little bit later. We're going to go to a correspondent for our Memphis affiliate, the Mighty 990, Ben Dieter, who's actually in Milwaukee right now. Also, we're going to have some fun. In about 20 minutes, we're going to talk with Tom Dreesen, a comedian, the man who made Sinatra laugh. And then next hour, a case that we've been covering, Keelan Darby, whose husband is a police officer who was charged with murder. She's going to give us an update on her husband's case. We're going to tell you all about that. But in watching the debate last night, and I watched most of it, listened to about half of it, I guess, as I was driving in, it got me thinking about a few things. It got me thinking about what Americans really care about. And it reminded me of a story that I saw a day or two ago about a Gallup poll. I don't love doing stories about Gallup polls. However, whenever we do stories about polls, so often it is indicative of some sort of decline in American society. Well, this was a poll that I think had a little bit of a, a promising outcome. In a nutshell, community... Hobbies and money matter more to Americans. Americans' priorities have shifted in some very notable ways. Americans are now placing more importance on community activities, hobbies, and money than they did 20 years ago. Now, health and family are still what Americans value the most in their lives, according to the poll, and that makes sense, certainly true in my my life. 
But the percentage of adults who say community activities are extremely or very important to them has gone up by 23 percentage points since 2002. I have to tell you, I was very surprised by this, but I was also very heartened by this because one of the things that I've been complaining about is that it seems people don't necessarily care what's going on in the communities. They're not participating in their local bowling league, the local Kiwanis or Rotary Club. And uh, Robert Putnam wrote this uh, terrific book about it that I read around 23 years ago called Bowling Alone, where he chronicles this. But that's not necessarily the case anymore. What Americans view as important in their lives is changing and changing, I think, largely for the better. U.S. adults are valuing hobbies, money, and community more than they did 20 years ago. And in 2002, 32% of American adults said community activities were extremely or very important to them. Now, 55% say that's the case. I'm wondering what you think is behind that. Do you think that's a reflection of Americans... I don't know, getting older, because the American population as a whole is getting older, is a reflection of people recognizing that their communities are in decay to some extent, that their community institutions, the institutions that they grew up with, that they grew up and uh, thought fondly of and saw them decline, that they need to get them back on the right course. I don't know what you think the cause is, but I think it's a good thing. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Let's delve into this a little bit. The percentage of men and women who have placed more value on community activities over the years is about equal. But views on the importance of such activities has varied significantly among age groups. The importance of community activities has grown the most among middle-aged adults or those who are 35 to 54 years old. The percentage of middle-aged adults who say community activities are extremely or very important to them has gone up by 31 points since 2002. Now, 59% of 35 to 54-year-olds say that community activities are extremely or very important to them compared to 28% in 2002. Meantime, the percentage of young adults placing more value in community activities has also increased, but by a little less, by 19 percentage points over the last two decades, with 52% of young adults saying community activities are extremely or very important to them. I also kind of wonder what the poll defines as community activities or what the poll respondents have in mind when they say community activities. Is it coaching the Little League team? Is it volunteering to clean up the beach or clean up the park? Is it uh, volunteering to help run a PTA bake sale? Or is it something else? I don't know. But the uh, percentage of U.S. adults valuing hobbies and money has also shot up since the early 2000s. I think the money aspect of this is maybe more easily explained in that in the early 2000s, it seemed like everybody had money and the economy was pretty strong, and now it seems like it's very difficult to make ends meet because of inflation and gas prices and food prices and the price of everything with salaries not necessarily keeping pace. Now, though, uh, the hobbies one, I don't necessarily know that I can explain. Wondering if you have an explanation on that. But the 61% of of U.S. adults say their hobbies and recreational activities are, are extremely and very important to them, and 79% say the same for money. 
two decades ago, that wasn't the case. 67% of adults said money was extremely or very important to them, and 48% said the same for hobbies and recreational activities. So while the percentage of U.S. adults valuing money has risen equally among men and women of different ages, the same is not true for hobbies. Hobbies and recreational activities have grown more important to the lives of young adults in particular over the years. I guess um, I don't know that I understand that either. I would have thought that young people always would have valued hobbies and recreational activities. But in 2002, 45 percent of 18 to 35 year olds said hobbies and recreational activities were extremely or very important. And by 2023, that number reached 66 percent. I think maybe part of that can be explained by COVID and the lockdowns. We were all going crazy. Well, not me, because my life was pretty much the same. I was coming to work every day. But everyone who was locked down for a year and a half was kind of bored to tears if they didn't have some sort of a hobby. I think it also caused a lot of people to rediscover certain hobbies like uh, bike riding or roller skating, uh, pickleball, ping pong, whatever the case may be. So I think this is very interesting, and I think it's uh, I think it's a positive. Look, I think money, look, they call money the root of all evil. It's also the root of paying your bills. But uh, I'm not at all surprised that money is important to people. But I think this is great news that Americans' priorities have shifted towards community activities and hobbies. And we talk so much about negative trends, the negative trends towards uh, addiction to mobile phones, the negative trends towards uh, people not dating, the negative trends towards uh, things like, uh, I don't know, all sorts of antisocial activities. So to think that hobbies and community activities are on the rise, I think it's a great thing. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I've always said life is not just about the dollars and cents. It's about the connections that people make the passions that we each pursue, and the laughter that we share. Now, money can't buy you true friendships, the satisfaction of a well-done hobby or the joy that comes from connecting with your community. And let's be real, in a world that often feels like it's spinning at warp speed, these are the things that ground us and that give us a sense of purpose. To So to see the – and unless you don't buy the poll, unless you think the poll is a lot of hogwash, but to see both of these priorities – go up money and community activity slash hobbies. I think it shows a very healthy balance on the part of where the American people are. So as far as my take on this in a society that sometimes glorifies the pursuit of wealth, I think it's so refreshing to see that deep down we value the intangibles, the simple pleasures that add color to our lives. And you think about it, when was the last time, a bank statement made you laugh out loud and gave you a warm, fuzzy feeling. Probably never. Don't get me wrong, though. You know, we need to put food on the table. And now that I have a uh, soon-to-be 21-month-old, I am trying to make as much money as I can because I see how much it costs to take care of a child. But it's um, let's not forget that there's so much more to life than material than just material wealth it's the book club that keeps you engaged the pickup softball game that lets you blow off steam the community garden that reminds you that you're part of something big something bigger 
So I am uh, curious where you come down on this, if you're surprised by these numbers, if you agree with these sentiments. I think I do. I would go along with what everybody is saying are the important priorities here. Family, health, money, community activities, and hobbies. Now, a lot of my hobbies are kind of parallels to my work life. I mean, if I wasn't doing this for a living, I would be doing this as a, as a hobby somewhere. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. Tom Dreesen, the man who made Sinatra laugh, is going to join us in about 10 minutes. And then uh, we'll do a little post-debate analysis. We'll do a little post-Pregosian analysis. We'll talk a little bit about the Giuliani and Trump cases as well. As far as the debate goes, uh, I mean, I watched it. I thought it had some okay moments. I'm left with a few takeaways, and I'm going to get into it a little bit more later. But one is, I think this is, as I think it was Ramaswamy who said this, it's, this is such an awful way to pick a president. And this is really like, this is more like how you pick a winner of a reality show. And it's everyone has their kind of pre-scripted one-liners that they're trying to get in there so they get on the evening news. This is all, I think, pretty meaningless. There was not a lot of discussion of real issues, although I was happy to see some policy differences, particularly on uh, foreign policy with, uh, say, Nikki Haley and Ramaswamy. I'm obviously much closer to the Ramaswamy end of things on foreign policy. But by and large, it just seemed uh, that people were trying to get these these uh, poll-tested one-liners out there onto the stage. So uh, towards the end, obviously, you know my interest in the UFO issue. And towards the end, I was very happy to see uh, Governor Chris Christie get a question on that. And Chris Christie did exactly what I'm describing. I don't know that he really necessarily answered it. He answered it kind of in the glib manner that he would have answered any other question. He made a joke, self-deprecating about him and his state, and then said, yes, of course he's going to be honest, even though if you look at his track record in New Jersey, it was anything but honest. Okay, now for something uh, a little out of this world, and this is for you, Governor Christie. Do you believe that the recent spike in UFO encounters... I get the UFO question? Yeah, you do. Come on, man. We've been hearing a lot of testimony in Congress, and people are taking this a lot more seriously. And we're hearing that, you know, there are things going on that people aren't aware of. So, if you were president, Governor Christie, would you level with the American people about what the government knows about these possible encounters? And especially coming from a woman from New Jersey, I, I think it's horrible that just because I'm from New Jersey, you asked me about unidentified flying objects and Martians. Um, we're different, but we're not that different. Um, look, um, of course, the job of the president of the United States is to level with the American people about everything. The job of the president of the United States is to stand for truth. The job of the President of the United States is to be a role model for our children and our grandchildren. And so whether it was UFOs or this problem of education, and Tim's right, by the way, and I started this in 2010 Mm. by going right after the teachers' unions in New Jersey and drove them down to an all-time low popularity rating because they were putting themselves before our kids. That 
is the biggest threat to our country, not UFOs. So, you know, that would have been the answer that Chris Christie gave with just a couple of words changed if they asked about anything. He wanted, I mean, how, think about that. How do you have a question about UFOs that involves the New Jersey Teachers Union? I mean, it's just a bizarre response to, to that particular question. But I'm not begrudging him for that. Uh, although I think it was a real opportunity to talk about uh, government secrecy and the very detailed bipartisan congressional hearings that we had on this. He ignored all that. But it's just kind of the nature of this process. This this process is so demeaning. This is not the kind of process that produces statesmen. This is not the uh, the kind of process that produces detailed policy discussions. It's not even the kind of process that gets people interested in voting. It's just basically it's a pageant. It's a beauty pageant for politicians. So I don't know what a better format is. I know we're not going to go back to the days of the Lincoln-Douglas debates where people didn't have television and cable and iPads and not, not even radio. And they would had nothing to do but sit around and listen to two people debate an issue for hours on end. I know that's not going to happen. And I'm a realist enough to know. But I just wonder if there's some way to not have our presidential elections determined by who gets the most clever one-liners in before a doorbell goes off and makes all the dogs in the house go crazy. Now, I don't know what that way is, but I was so heartened by this poll, this Gallup poll, showing that community activities, hobbies, and still health and family are important to America because that, much more so than anything I saw in the debate yesterday, gives me uh, faith in the direction that uh, our country might be headed into a good place rather than a negative one. Uh, your comments are welcome. 800-848-9222. We'll talk with Tom Dreesen in a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. You came along and everything started into hum. Still, it's a real good bet the best is yet to come. Best is yet to come, and babe, won't that be fine? Youth 
think you've seen the sun, but you ain't seen it shine. Wait till the warm-up's underway. Wait till our lips have met. And wait till you see that sunshine day. You ain't seen nothing yet. This is the other side of midnight. Uh, that, of course, uh, is the velvet voice, the dulcet tones of the great Frank Sinatra. I've always been a, a big Frank Sinatra fan, literally my entire life. And I think, and I got into this a little bit with my uh, in my discussion with Doug McIntyre last week, and when we talked about his book, Frank's Shadow. There's just something about the music of Frank Sinatra that is timeless. There are so many great singers, so many great bands, so many great performers that are perfect for their era, but they don't necessarily have the staying power. Their songs don't necessarily resonate with audiences 20, 30, 40, 50 years after those songs were recorded. And to think that someone like Sinatra has so many of those songs that do that is really, I think, an extraordinary thing. Then you look at his work as an actor, which, because he's such a phenomenal musician, I think often gets uh, overshadowed. His work as an actor is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you watch a picture like The Manchurian Candidate, for instance, for instance. Uh, for instance, it is absolutely terrific, and it still holds up today, influenced a lot of cinema that came after it. And then you look at the life Frank Sinatra led when he wasn't performing. That's perhaps even more interesting than any of that. And uh, I have gotten lately, I, I got into a, a debate with two of my neighbors lately because they were what I'll call Sinatra skeptics. Uh, Sinatra naysayers may be a more apt term. And I'm a bit of a contrarian by nature. So the fact that they were kind of Sinatra doubters, it has made me even more enthusiastically pro-Sinatra. So tonight, I'm supposed to go to this dinner that is a discussion of all things related to Frank Sinatra and the era in which he lived. And I am, there's people there that were friends with Frank Sinatra, that knew Frank Sinatra, and I am going to be by far the least knowledgeable person with the least firsthand experiences with Frank Sinatra. So I thought to myself two things. One, let me find a guy that knew Sinatra as well as anybody at least got a ringside seat for some of the things that Sinatra was doing for 13 years. And maybe I'll, I'll get a tidbit or two of uh, things that can make me sound like I know what I'm talking about at this dinner. But I also thought with uh, this debate where you have candidates calling climate change a hoax and calling one another names and trying to get 90-second quirky answers out before a doorbell rings, where you have uh, you know leaders of paramilitary military militia groups being killed in all likelihood in Russia, where you have former presidents and former mayors being indicted. It's all just so heavy. It's all so much. I could use a little bit of a break, and I can't think of anybody who can be the antidote to the present news cycle 
as well as give me a few answers to sound like I know what I'm talking about at this dinner tonight, then Tom Dreesen. I absolutely love Tom Dreesen. Not only is he incredibly funny, but he is a gifted storyteller, whether he's telling the stories on the radio, on a stage, or in the printed page. He is a legendary stand-up comic and the author of a terrific book, which I've read, and I've had a lot of friends that have read, and they all love it. It's called Still Standing. Tom Dreesen, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Frank. Hey, quick question. I've got two settings on this phone. Am I coming in loud and clear on this? You sound good to me. Yeah, you sound good to me. We'll 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 stick with it until uh, until it craps out on us. Okay, because I can do I know I can do two two settings real quickly, but I just wanted to make sure that you could hear me real clear on this setting. You sound great to me. Uh, so, Tom, give okay. me a give me a tip at this dinner when I'm going to be with all these Sinatra contemporaries uh, tonight that I can actually sound like I know something about Sinatra. Give me a, a Sinatra tidbit that only somebody on the inside, like you were when you were his opening act for 13 years, would actually know. Uh, you know, there's so many th- things I could tell you, Frank. First of all, are you sitting at a dinner with people who actually knew Frank, who met him once or twice? Because there's very few people alive today who actually knew him, you know, that really knew him. I mean, it's people like, oh, yeah, he came in my restaurant. And, uh, no, I, I met him one time with my brother-in-law. And, you know, but they, they, there's a lot of people who are students of his that have read a lot about his life from different authors, but even those authors didn't know Frank, you know, personally, they knew him um, professionally, you know, uh, and, and maybe saw. Well, I'll send you some of the names off air and you could tell me what their true level of, uh, of knowledge w- with, uh, with Frank was. So uh, I'll ask you about that off air. You do this okay, great. Um, oh, but so give me a tidbit. Give me, give me a, a, a bit of Sinatra trivia that only someone on the inside like you would have known. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I do a one-man show called The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. It's 90 minutes. It's, it's stand-up comedy, but it's storytelling about my journey. Uh, the title of my book is Still Standing. The subtitle is My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. So in that one-man show, I tell a lot of stories about Frank about and funny stories and poignant stories. But there's... there's um, so much has been written about him. I don't know that I give you any, you know, toward the end of his life. Let, let me digress a minute. When I first went on tour with Frank Sinatra, he was the boss of this tour, of this magnificent tour we were doing in 45, 50 cities a year in front of 20,000 seat arenas in, in Hawaii, 40,000. So he was the boss, and that's how I treated him. He later, as time went by, became a friend, and we, we hung out. For a cliche, to the wee small hours of the morning. Toward the end of his life, he came more like a father to me, and he gave me advice, you know, as you know, as, as, toward the end of that. So, so I knew him in, in those different categories. Uh, the, the, everybody knows about the benevolence of Frank Sinatra. They know of things he did, but maybe why he did them. And I'll tell you something personal. First, I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'll tell you something that a lot of people may, may not have known about him. But it is in New York, and I told you this story once before, Frank. In New York, we were coming out of Waldorf Astoria one night on our way to a gig. And we went out the back entrance because if we went out the front, Frank would be mobbed. And as we were, the security was taking us to the limousine, rushing us to the limousine, a woman jumped out of the doorway and she started screaming, Mr. Sinatra, please, Mr. Sinatra, please. 
and the security was holding her back, and he was getting in the limo, and she kept hollering, please, Mr. Sinatra. So he, he came back out of the limo, and he he told the security, leave her alone. He walked up. He said, what is it, ma'am? She said, my husband is home sick. He's terribly ill. And if I could get an autograph from you, it, it would be, mean the world to him because he's very, very ill. And Frank said, sure. And he's signing the autograph, and she said, oh, what beautiful cufflinks. He said, thank you. And he signed the autograph, and the cufflinks were well over $1,000. I know where he got them at. They were very special cufflinks. He said, thank you. And he took the cufflinks off, and he handed them to her. He said, give these to your husband. She said, oh, no, no, I don't want them. I just was admiring them. He said, no, I want your husband to have these. And we got back in the limo, and I said to him, Frank, that was beautiful. Why did you do that? He said, Tommy, if you possess something that you can't give away, then you don't possess it. It possesses mm. you. I love that story. And, I love that story. Well, I, I, I never forgot that. He said, because he said, Tommy, see that shirt you have on your back? If you die tomorrow, it belongs to somebody else. Nothing we have is ours. We're only using it. Aristotle Onassis, he told me, he said, Aristotle Onassis had billions of dollars. He had private jets. He had private yachts in mansions and the second he died it all transferred so nothing we have is ours you know now that was something that really really meant a lot to me but the the more i got to know frank the more i realized that he was an avid reader when he was younger and when i stayed at his compound down in rancho mirage frank never went to bed till the sun came up whether we were on the road or off the road uh, if we were on the on the road, he stayed up till the, after the shows. He, you know, he'd sit around a restaurant or wherever, or in, in, a, in a tavern. And, and when the sun came up, Frank went to bed. When I stayed at his compound, he did the same thing. But he would ask me sometimes. He'd come to my bungalow and say, "Come on, Tommy, let's take a ride." And we'd go riding around the desert down in uh, Rancho Mirage in, in the Palm Springs area. We'd go ride around till the sun came up. Many of those nights, we would get in long conversations. And and I'm an avid reader, and I'm also a, a motivation speaker. I, I give talks on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. And I elaborate on those four points. This is the inside tidbit that, that people would know. There was a book that really affected Frank Sinatra. It was called The Magnificent Obsession by Lloyd C. Douglas. And he brought this up with me one night. And its predecessor of the book was called Dr. Hudson's Secret Journal. And they made a movie out of The Magnificent Obsession, and Rock Hudson played the lead. But in the book, The Magnif- Magnificent Obsession, it's, uh, 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 it tells you that if you, the secret of success is if you want to become a success, and you pray for that. You say, I want to be a doctor, or I want to be a lawyer, or I want to be a comedian, or I want to be a singer. If you really um, want that, the, the, in, in the book, it said that ask and you shall receive, you know? And so if you really believe that, then, you know, once you ask your master and say, I want to be a singer, I want to be a comedian or whatever it is you want to be, then you have to believe with all your heart and soul that that's going to happen because ask and you shall receive. But once you ask, then from that point on, you have to believe that you're going to receive. Your dream is going to come true. Your prayers are going to be answered, but you have to then keep your eyes and ears open for one of his less fortunate children. And you have to help them, for whatever, whatever their problem is, the hunger or whatever, but you help them privately and quietly so they don't know that you did it. You know, so if you do that, within 30 days, your master will reward you towards your endeavor. Now, uh, he not only talked that talk, but he walked that talk. It's, it's actually 
biblical in nature. It's it, it's um, that you must you must never brag about what you're doing for others. You, in fact, the way as I explained to do it is so that they don't know that you did it. Now, if you have to do something for them that you can't avoid them knowing, then you have to swear them to secrecy and tell them that I will do this for you, but you must not tell anyone and you can't pay me back, pay it forward. Now, and again, I go back to this is biblical. And if there are people listening tonight and if you can remember the, the saying, it's, it's, it's from uh, the, the New Testament. It said, when you are praying, do not behave like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray in synagogues or on street corners in order to be noticed. I give you my word, they are already repaid. Whenever you pray, go into your room, close your door, and pray to your father in private. Then your father, who sees what no man sees, will repay you. Mm. So and it said, but and if you're going to do something, it said, when you give alms, for example, do not blow a horn before you in synagogues and streets like hypocrites looking for applause. You can be sure of this much. They are already repaid. In giving alms, you are not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Keep your deeds of mercy a secret, and your father who sees a secret will repay you. Now, Frank Sinatra lived that. He, he read that as a young man, and he believed that, and that's what he did his whole life. And that's why he was so rewarded. First of all, he was gifted with this great voice, but he still worked very, very hard, and he was repaid for everything that, that he did. And he was so generous beyond your imagination. You will never, ever know all the magnificent deeds he did because he didn't want anyone to know. Now, that that's just so you can tell your friends, you know. God, I, I, I love that. that. That's great. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, with Tom Dreesen, legendary stand-up comedian, author of a, a terrific book called Still Standing. He also does a, a live stage show called The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. If you want to learn more about Tom or pick up the book, you can go to his website, TomDreesen.com. That's D-R-E-E-S-E-N.com. So, Tom, you've, you've been referred to, rightly so, as the man who made Sinatra laugh. Do you remember in the 13 or 14 years that you spent working with one another what the biggest laugh that you ever got from Sinatra was, whether it was something that was a result of one of your jokes or just something that you did between the two of you or whether it was you slipping on a banana peel? Do you remember what it was that you did that got you his biggest guffaw ever? Well, I, I can remember so many things. By the way, every night when I, we were performing, uh, especially in the casinos, that he would stay, stand in the wings uh, waiting for, to come on, and he would stand behind and listen to my show. And he always liked when I did some new material. He would, and it's one of the reasons he kept me all those years, because we went to the same cities and the same venues year in and year out. And so he needed a comedian to keep changing his material. But I'll tell you one time, and I do it in my one-man show, and I have the video of him laughing and pounding the table and putting his head down and laughing, and you see him saying, that's funny now what it was was like he was getting an award here in la the will rogers award for all of his good deeds right now the will rogers for your listening audience who may not know who will rogers was he was a famous comedian in in the 30s and uh he he died in a plane crash but he also was a wonderful man who said his they always remember he said i never met a man i didn't like you know, Will Rogers said he never met a man he didn't like. And now Frank Sinatra's getting this award this for charity, and he's tongue-in-cheek. Now, at the 
reception prior to it at the Beverly Hills Hotel, <laughs> people were whispering, Frank Sinatra's getting an award. He never met a man he didn't like, you know, because, you know, Frank was this guy who, who could be volatile, you know. So they were all talking, whispering, Frank Sinatra's getting an award. He never met a man he didn't like. Now, when I got up in front of this whole audience and the cameras on Frank, I said, Frank Sinatra punched every man Will Rogers ever liked. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. I can see why that uh, engendered oh, he, a reaction. He roared. He roared. He la- it's on a film. And so when, I, when I'm when doing my one-man show, you see me saying that, and you see him just la- And everybody in the room is laughing and applauding. Another night I made him laugh. It was like we'd been on the road doing one-nighters uh, all over the country, and then we flew into Las Vegas, and we opened at the Desert Inn, and we did two shows that night now it's four thirty in the morning and I'm tired. I'm really tired. I want to go to bed, but he's going strong. There's about four or five of us sitting around the table, way in the back uh, of the restaurant at the Desert Inn, and I could see it's another all night. We're going to be there till the sun comes up. But about four thirty in the morning, I just said that's it. I got up and I said to go. He said, "Hey, hey, where are you going?" I said, "I'm going to bed." He said, "What for?" I said, "I got to get up early in the morning and go to the cemetery and visit those guys." He said, "What guys?" I said, "All those guys who died trying to stay with you every night." <laughs> and and he, he roared at that. He thought that was so funny. And he said, go to bed. And then he'd make me tell that story all the time. You know. I can imagine. That's pretty I, good. I'll tell you, go ahead. I don't mean to interrupt you, but i tell you why I love making him laugh. Obviously, his nickname was Old Blue Eyes, but he had the bluest eyes that I've ever seen on a human being. They On the private jet, sometimes we'd be going somewhere. He'd be sitting across him, and the light would be coming in from the plane, from the light into the window, and his eyes were like crystal blue. But when you made him laugh, they his eyes lit up. They absolutely lit up, you know. And so I love making him laugh. You know. uh, no, I can absolutely see why. Obviously, Sinatra is one of these larger-than-life entertainers. He's dead now, uh, twenty-five years. You have a a pretty successful entertainment career, having nothing to do with Frank Sinatra. You were doing stand-up before you and Frank Sinatra worked with one another. You've written a terrific book. You've been in great movies, including one of my all-time favorite comedies, Spaceballs. You're, um, you're, you're a big deal having nothing to do with Sinatra. Do you ever get tired of talking about Frank Sinatra. I'm sure you get asked about Frank Sinatra every day, and I can see somebody that has accomplished so many different things in so many different areas, that might be a little frustrating at times. Do you ever feel like you're living in Frank's shadow? Oh, no question about it. And I knew that when I started touring with him. And I always tell this story that at one time we were flying into, we'd been on the road and we were flying, I think it was New Orleans, we were coming back, we were flying in this private jet into Palm Springs. Now the plane would land there and then he, if I was staying there, uh, we'd get off there. But the plane always returned back to Van Nuys, California. And I live in Sherman Oaks, which is right next to Van Nuys. So sometimes I would fly back on the private jet, you know, and Frank would get off there. So this particular night, which was a Thursday night, we landed and Frank said to me, oh, you're staying with me this weekend. I said, no, I've got to go back into L.A. and do the Tonight Show. He said, I'll call Fred DeCord if I'll get you out of it. I said, no, I don't want to. I don't want to get out of it. It's like my 50th appearance on the Tonight Show, and, and uh, they're making a big deal out of it. So Frank I said, when I told him that, he said, wow, uh, 50 times. He said, is that a record? Uh, I said, for comedians. He said, I said, no, uh, Rodney Dangerfield and, and um, David Benner maybe did more than me, but um, but it doesn't matter, Frank. I said, no matter what I do from this day forward, no matter what I've accomplished in my career, 
my obituary is going to say the comedian who toured with Frank Sinatra. And he said to me, well, maybe my obituary will say the singer who toured with Tom Gleason. And we both started laughing so hard that he kept saying, what? And I, that was such a, a ridiculous thing, a, a, a ludicrous thing to say that we both thought we just kept laughing. However, it's come to pass. And I know that, that, that I knew that was going to happen. My manager, when I was first started touring with Frank, he said, Tom, stay with him six months. And then you got to move on because you can never become a star in the shadow of such a great star. But I didn't care. I didn't. I, I turned down more sitcoms than most comedians get offered in a lifetime when I was touring with Frank because every time that was offered to me, it would mean I'd have to quit touring with him. And I was having the time of my life. Oh, I Frank. can imagine. Uh, I can imagine. And it, it, you know, being being in his presence, I, I sang shoes in taverns when I was a little boy, and he was on all the jukeboxes. If somebody would have told me that one day you hear that guy in the jukebox. One day, you know what I'm saying, come fly with me. You're going to fly with him all over the world. You're going to stay in his home. Uh, he's going to, you know, uh, you know, become a, a dear friend to you. You know, I, I'll tell you, one time I was running a marathon for multiple sclerosis, and my sister Darlene had MS, and I, so I called it 26 miles for Darlene. And, and people pledge money for every mile. I run in all proceeds with the, the, for the cure of MS. And CNN was going to interview me. It was the first time I ran three marathons, but this was the first one. And so they came with the cameras and everything. And the guys were getting ready. We're getting ready to start the marathon here. Tom Preaching's running his first marathon. Tom, I'm standing here. I, I want to ask you something, Tom. Tell us about Frank Sinatra. And you know what? It doesn't bother me because I loved him. I mean, I was a pallbearer at his funeral, and I spoke at his funeral, and I miss him every day of my life. So, no, uh, it, it will never offend That's me. That's wonderful. I'm honored, I'm honored to have graced the same stage with him. But I say this all the time. I never cared whether CBS, ABC, NBC, I never cared if they loved me or not. I never cared if the film industry loved that Frank Sinatra Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin, I performed with all of them, but Frank the longest, that they thought I was good enough to be on the same stage with them. You can close the coffin on me now. I, I mean, that, that means more to me than anything else. You've been performing as a comedian since the late 1960s, and I, one of the things about comedy is that it certainly evolves over time. It's difficult to imagine Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd having a large TikTok following that apply that appeals to the kind of people that are that are uh, looking for comedy on TikTok. How has your material evolved over time to connect with different generations or are you doing the same jokes in 2023 that you were doing in 1973? No, I, I change my material all the time, and I work on new material. When I was doing the Tonight Show, when you did the Tonight Show, you had to come up with a new five minutes every time that you did it. Uh, so I, I, then I did 61 appearances on the Tonight Show, so I kept coming up with new material. And I keep doing that to this day. I go to the Laugh Factory uh, or the Comedy Store here in L.A. or the Improvisation, and, and there's another place called the Comedy Chateau. And I get up on those days. I, I go down weekends when I'm off the road, and I, and I try out the material. And now they film you. I used to take my tape recorder, but those clubs now will film you, and they'll give you the film. So when you're working on the material, they'll they'll send it to you on the computer with a link, you know. So uh, I, I still love coming up in the material. And also in those audiences, when I go to a comedy store, this is my 53rd year as being a comedian, my 50. No, this is my 54th year. Wow. I mean, you might have a future in this I, business, Tom. Yeah. 
I'll keep trying till I get it right. But when I go in front of those audiences, there's young black, young white, young late, uh, young Asian, young Latino in the audience, and so my material still resonates with them because I'm always coming up with you know, uh, uh, you know fresh material, whatever is happening in my life, you know. The uh, you've performed in every possible type of venue that you can imagine, small clubs to massive arenas. You performed in a wide range of, of venues. Is there any specific type of audience or setting that you find most invigorating? Do you prefer a small smoke-filled saloon, or do you prefer a a giant uh, a giant arena the size of Madison Square Garden? Well, <laughs> obviously, the bigger the audience, the bigger the laughs. You know, so that, you know, if, if, you, if you ask me, if, if I did 20 minutes, say I did 25 minutes of material tomorrow night at the comedy store here in L.A. or the Laugh Factory and in front of 150 or 200 people, if I did that same exact 25 minutes in an arena of 20,000 people, like opening for Frank or something, that same material takes on a totally different dynamic. Uh, because it's all about timing then, and and uh, and and if you, it's hard to describe timing. Uh, you either have it or you don't, you know. But it's knowing when when to move on the next line. How big the laugh is. You never move on the next line when the laugh is on its way up. You wait till that laugh is on its way down. And and some nights you let it go all the way down, and some nights you let it go halfway down. But the audience helps you set your timing, you know. Uh, the audience laughter. So the bigger the arena. I mean, the greater the experience, you know, uh, and and especially opening for Frank, that you could turn that audience, you could get that audience and set them up for him. They didn't, you know, I, I think I told you this once before, Frank, but I'll give you an idea what it was like opening for Frank Sinatra. Say we're at the Nassau Coliseum and there's, there's um, 20,000 people out there. And Frank, you're getting ready to open for Frank Sinatra. And I say to you, Frank, I say, Frank, it's five minutes before you're going on. I want you to go out there and I want you to stand in the middle of that arena, Frank. Uh, they're all around you. They're behind you. They're on your left. They're on your right. They're in front of you. It's not proscenium. You're in the, in the round. I say, Frank, I want you to go out there. And for the next 25 minutes, I want you to hold their attention. Uh, there's 20,000 people. Out there. Oh, one more thing, Frank. I want you to hold their attention, but I want you to make them laugh for the next 25 minutes. Oh, one more thing, Frank. I want you to make them laugh when you want them to laugh. <laughs> I want you to pull the strings on the emotions of 20,000 20, people. Uh, no props, no tricks, no charts, no special arrangement, no orchestra, nothing. Just you and 20,000 people. And one more thing, Frank, not one of them came to see you. That's what it was like opening the Frank Sinatra. I, I, I can't imagine. It's got to be one of the most uh, intimidating things in uh, that one can do in entertainment. We've been talking with uh, with Tom Dreesen. I hope you will uh, check out his book, Still Standing. It is still terrific. And if you get the opportunity uh, to do so, you definitely want to check out his uh, his one-man show, The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. Learn more about it all at TomDreesen.com. Tom, it's always a treat to have you. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Anytime, Frank. I really enjoy talking to you. I really do. Thanks so much. Same here. Thank you, Tom Dreesen. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're certainly welcome to. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Sign at midnight with Frank Morano. Imagination. This is a uh, great song, uh, and you can always find out what kind of music we're playing on our program by joining the Morano Radio Fans and Haters Facebook group. This is a birthday bumper music selection by Dr. Joel Ryder, who is uh, one of our most devoted listeners and one of our most prolific Facebook commenters. And uh, today's his birthday. Hopefully he spends the day getting his uh, making his birthday wishes instead of po- posting bigoted things uh, against the Russians. We'll see where that goes. Man can hope, can he? We'll see. All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. If you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with uh, with Tom Dreesen, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. A little bit later, we'll uh, get into this debate with uh, Brian Kilmeade and somebody actually in Milwaukee, Ben Dieter from KWAM in Memphis. Next hour, very much looking forward to talking with Keelan Darby. Uh, She's a law enforcement officer and also the wife of an Alabama cop who has been charged with murder. As far as I can tell, this case is a pure and complete travesty. Now, one of the things I am one of the last people that I know that still has cable. Matt Blaze, you have cable? You do. You do. And um, you do. And what's keeping you on cable? Because, you know, it is, you have a bunch of these streaming networks like I do. I got everything. And so it costs us a pretty penny to have cable and all that. Why do you still have cable? Well, there's still, I still have that, just like I still have a telephone, like a landline. 
I cannot let go of cable, plus the fact that my internet is also through the cable company. Right. So it, it's almost like to separate the two, mm. then I'll be paying more for internet. I'm like, well, I might as well just do it, even though my bill just keeps going up and up and up. So one of my neighbors, you know, they love to get – my wife is eager to get rid of cable, and I'm fighting a losing battle here because they keep raising the, right, the, the prices. And one of my neighbors has one of these hacked fire sticks where he apparently gets all the channels. And Rachel says, oh, that's what we got to get. It's called Monsters. That's what we got to get. I said, honey, the number of criminals that I know and as critical as I've been of the DOJ and prosecutorial agencies, we are not doing anything remotely illegal because I'm going to be the first person locked up. We have to be above suspicion like Caesar's wife. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. Well, here's a story that has uh, given me some serious deja vu vibes. It's all the way from the great white north, Canada. You see, um, we have a lot of Canadian listeners, but this is something that is creeping its way down from our neighbor to the north all the way to the United States. I'll explain why in a second. You see, Ontario has Ontario, the province in Canada, has decided to dust off cursive writing, script, and put it back on the school curriculum. Why, you ask? Well, they're saying it's because they want children to be able to write love letters to their beloved in the war. Now, before you start picturing kids armed with feather quills and ink pots, let me assure you there's a lot more to this than just romantic notions. Picture this, a classroom where kids are not just keyboard wizards, but also maestros of the art of cursive. It's like sending them to Hogwarts, but instead of magic spells, they're learning the elegant dance of ink on paper. It might seem like a blast from the past, but there's something deeper at play here. I am all for what Canada is doing. They are requiring the students, which who are starting to come back to school soon, to learn cursive, but they have a big problem. Teachers that are going to be teaching this, they don't know how to write it, let alone teach it. Because when they were in school over the last 15 to 20 years, they were not required to learn cursive. And now, now they're going to be teaching it. So a lot of people in Ontario have welcomed the reintroduction of cursive, but some educators say translating that to the classroom is easier said than done. And I think you're going to see a similar problem in New Hampshire. In May, Governor Sununu signed a bill mandating cursive in schools. A lot of the teachers 
came through the education system in the state of New Hampshire at a time when cursive was not required to be learned. There's a bill in Michigan that recommends uh, teaching cursive handwriting. It is not yet a requirement in uh, Michigan, but it's creating this optional cursive program for students. So you have a situation where now that um, it's almost like a, a dystopian science fiction novel where there is nobody left who knows how to use these machines, which were created by an ancient society. And we've decided, well, we're going to start using these machines again. There's no one left who, know, who remembers how to use them. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but only a little bit. You have all this movement in Canada and the United States to bring back cursive writing. And the people that are going to be tasked with teaching children how to write cursive were don't know how to use it. Now, I am... I hated handwriting in school. It was my least favorite subject in the third grade, in the second grade, and in the fourth grade. I still remember how I felt for the 40 minutes or so in Mrs. Zadig's class at PS3, the place to be, when I had to learn uh, or, or practice penmanship. It was agony. It was the worst 40 minutes. I think we had it two or three times a week. It was the worst part of my day. Whenever we had it, I would do whatever I could to get out of that. I hated it. And it's one of the reasons that uh, my handwriting is so atrocious now. It was I write the same way now that I did when I was in the third grade, honestly. And they say that's what happens. You kind of you 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 keep writing at the level where you stopped learning cursive. And I think my penmanship failed to improve past the third grade. And I don't know if maybe it's a part of me that wants the next generation of children to suffer as much as I did. But I do think it's an important skill for children to have, to learn cursive. And I think they should. And I can't solve the logistical issue with uh, with respect to um, if teachers don't know it, what do you actually do? But I think teachers should absolutely be able to teach cursive in schools. Here's a, a an elementary school principal in Detroit via Channel 7 who was commenting on this Michigan proposal, which is for optional cursive. We want our students to be digital citizens and ready to type and um, enter a technological world. We also want them to not lose that fine art. We expect a lot of our teachers. We have so many standards that we need to instruct throughout the course of the year in each grade level, um, starting with kindergarten. And so it's finding that balance of fitting in the handwriting when we can, while also making sure that we are hitting home on reading and math and social studies and science. You see, and I agree with her. I think that's a great attitude. Cursive isn't just a bunch of fancy loops and swirls. It's a way to connect with our history, a way to decipher those old-timey documents. Because, I mean, think about it. If you're trying to read a letter that uh, Christopher Columbus wrote, well, he was writing in Spanish, but if you're trying to read a letter that George Washington wrote during the Revolutionary War and it's in cursive and you don't know how to read and write cursive, Think of what a disadvantage that is. It's a way to train our brains in ways that typing, and I look, I'm big into typing. I I, uh, I like typing. I think I type fairly quickly, or at least above average. But it's a way to train our brains in ways that typing just can't match. We're talking about patience, attention to detail, and the sheer joy of crafting something by hand. In some ways, it's like meditation 
but with a pen. And again, maybe this is my way of justifying that. Hey, if I had to suffer through two periods a week of penmanship, you should too. But here's the kicker. The move in Canada isn't just happening there. It's a trend that is sweeping across schools all over the American continent. I am actually not sure what's driving this, because I would think that just the opposite would be true, that now that the world's becoming increasingly digital, that you'd see more schools permanently doing away with cursive, but that's not the case. In New York City, for instance, where I live, the charter schools have always mandated cursive, but some of the regular old public schools, the non-charter schools, are considering bringing it back. I think maybe it's because of some of the competition from the charter schools and some of the private schools as well. It's not just about a, uh, about writing love letters. It's about embracing a skill that's as timeless as a classic novel. It's about students learning to slow down in this fast-paced digital world, to take a breath and to put their thoughts onto paper in a way that's uniquely them. And I was going to ask Doug McIntyre about this the uh, the other day, and I don't remember why I was going to ask it to him, but one of the things that historians are having a problem with is if you want to review historical documents, whether it's the Declaration of Independence or other speeches that people have, have read or have, have written – there are drafts. Most people write multiple drafts. They cross something out and they'll toss it aside. A lot of those drafts are saved and they just provide great fodder for future historians and anthropologists and other people. But now that everything or almost everything is being written digitally, there are no first drafts. The book that comes out, the speech that comes out, whoever writes it, they just delete what they want to change, and they click save, and then that's the only thing that's available for future historians to review. And I think that's a, a real shame to some extent, because you don't necessarily get to see the evolution of the thinking process of someone. I can already hear people saying, Frank, haven't we evolved beyond cursive? And the truth is, some things never go out of style. Well, might be all for embracing digital technologies, emojis and GIFs and whatever else is big now. There's something beautiful about the tactile nature of handwriting. It's a way to bridge generations, a way to appreciate history, a way to leave behind a legacy that's more personal than any SMS text message. I've been trying to write in cursive more often. I've been trying to be more diligent about writing in my journal, even if it's just a few minutes a day, just so I can at least have pen to paper for a few minutes. So whether you're sipping maple syrup in Canada or munching on a Frankfurter in the heart of America, I think we should recognize the importance of this cursive revival. It's not just about joining the loops. It's about joining the past, the present, and even the future. It's about embracing a skill that's both practical and poetic. And it's about ensuring that the art of handwriting isn't lost in the shuffle of keyboards and screens. So I think we should celebrate cursive. I don't know what we do about the teachers that don't know it. I mean, I guess they're just going to have to learn it again. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. But there's, let's celebrate the quirks, the curves, the connections it brings. And who knows, maybe one day you'll get a handwritten letter that makes your heart skip a beat. I have noticed that when I send handwritten letters to people, it really means something to them. It really counts for something. It's a letter they end up saving. And uh, just like the letters that they used to write in the war, 
my grandmother, she was married to my, my grandfather, who I'm named for, obviously, and he served in World War II. He was a recipient of a Purple Heart in World War II. And he wrote my grandmother a lot of letters during the war, and she saved them until she, until she, my grandfather died, and she ended up marrying a man, another man also named Frank, and she got rid of them. She sold these letters to a stamp collector because they had a lot of vintage stamps. And my stepmother went and tracked down the the guy that bought these letters, and she bought them back, and uh, she spent an enormous amount of time. Uh, rewriting these letters and typing them up onto a computer screen, the letters that my grandfather wrote in World War II to my grandmother. And it's such, if she didn't know how to read cursive, she wouldn't have been able to do that. And think of what a loss that would be to our family and our family history, not to be able to review those letters. So I think we you should stay curious, stay connected, and keep the ink flowing on the pages of our lives, including for school children. A lot of people disagree. I think my father actually disagrees. If if I remember correctly, the last time that we spoke, he was saying that um, that uh, it's it's essentially obsolete. That we should work on teaching computer skills and things of that nature to children and communications technology that's more apt to the digital world that we're in today, and not focus any time on cursive. I disagree with him. If if I'm remembering our conversation. Correctly. It's been a while since we spoke about it. 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, you have a uh, a uh, thought on uh, whether people should learn cursive still? I think it's such a foreign idea to me that people cannot write or read cursive. Because I can, and I think it should be taught. Do you use cursive? No. I, I mean, I think my, my handwriting is a sort of a mixture of print and cursive, just however I write. I'm left-handed. Lefties are known to have horrible handwriting. And I don't think mine's that bad, but I don't write in full cursive. It's just this weird mixture okay. that I do. But, but I could. If somebody said but to me, you, but I, do you think kids should still learn it? Absolutely. Now, uh, Kevin is here in for Kenneth, who's on one of his many vacations. And um, you're a good deal younger than I think both Matt Blaze and me. You're in college now, you said, right? Yeah, I'm 20. I'm in my third year of college. Was, um, was, was handwriting required when you were in school? I was just telling Matt that I learned it. It was required in, up until I was in third grade, and then I was the final year of my district to have learned it. I see. So you were the final year. right? So what's your take on this? Since you were, since you were, did, uh, did you grow up in the New York area? Yeah, I did. I'm from Long Island. Oh, okay. And so now Long Island schools, they don't teach it there anymore. No, not at all. And so do you, what do you think? Do you think kids should still have to learn it or should they not? I think it should still be learned because if you put into perspective, I'm not saying you should wipe out math and other subjects, but what am I going to see for the rest of my life? Cursive handwriting or geometry and algebra? I'd, I'd probably <laughs> say cursive handwriting is a little more important to my life. That, that's right. When was the last time uh, in your job as a telephone talent coordinator you were asked to uh, to uh, tell us the area of a circle? I imagine it hasn't happened in a while. Right? No, it hasn't. All right. Ada, what do you think? One, should children still learn handwriting in schools? And uh, my answer is an enthusiastic yes, even though I hated it. But I guess that's what adulting is all about, right? Uh, forcing the next generation to do all the things you hated doing when you were in school. And uh, two, what do you do about the fact that the teachers that are going to be tasked with teaching this are basically, uh, they're basically Kevin's generation. They're a generation of teachers that went through school not having to learn this and may not know how to write it. How do you solve that logistically? That's a question I don't 
have an answer for. 800-848-9222. Gail is in Manhattan. Hello, Gail. Hi. Um, I've always loved handwriting. Um, one important aspect that I think should be discovered that, that's going to go hand in hand with rediscovering handwriting is perhaps a return to punctuation, um, good grammar, spelling. I think it's all connected. There's such a breakdown, and, and my own even, texting, and I'm, I've always been pretty much of a stickler for, for grammar, punctuation, being careful about all that. But it's breaking down with this texting. Why bother? You know, capitalizing letters here and there, even punctuation, spelling, because people will get the message of what you're trying to say. They've gotten lazy. They don't bother. And when you're doing it by hand, handwriting, uh, I think we're going to have to be forced to rediscover the rules of grammar and punctuation. Well, I think you're right about that, and I think that's good advice regardless. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Pamela in New Jersey, you, you are or were a teacher, correct? Yes. Yeah, so give, I, I thought, give, give me your cursive. take on this. Yes. Yeah. Um, when you write in cursive, it enhances your stream of thought. When you print, you have to, or type, you have to uh, type in a letter and then lift your your motor skills. And the brain thinks in a different way. When you write in cursive, it, there's a flow and there's a creativity. So, you know, it opens it up to a, a more of an artistic flow of thought and um, I think, you know, challenges the brain in a better way, um, you know, in a different way. And, you know, therefore, you know, and you have your art of calligraphy. And, um, you know, it's funny. I was just mentioning this to somebody the other day. I said uh, something about cursive and they said, what's that? And I said, really? Oh yeah, they said, what's cursive? And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, nobody, you know, signs a check anymore. Or, and it identifies you. You know, I mean, they actually know that a signature belongs to somebody. So it, it, it ties into the motor skills and the, and the personality of who you are. That print, um, print has its own style, too. You can tell, you know, different styles of print. But cursive is, is good for the brain. And um, it, it's very important. And in school, we're so busy with uh, nowadays with all different things, and we've got to get down to the basics. And I agree with that lady about the grammar. I used to love diagramming sentences. It was like a puzzle. It was like fun. Um, and it, it was an enjoyment. And they, the fact that they don't do that anymore and the breaking down of language, written language, Without the punctuation and the capitalization, um, it does change the way people think and socialize and respect aspects of, of our lives. Mm, that That is so interesting. And I, I don't know that I've heard that take before, but it, it sounds like in some ways you think the the more people use cursive, that could actually change the way they act in society. Absolutely. That's wild. Absolutely. That's really interesting. Uh, and I, that's a you make a pretty strong case there, Pamela. Thank you. 800-848-9222. One, should children learn cursive? Two, how do you solve a situation where teachers that are going to be teaching it in places like New Hampshire and Canada and Michigan, and maybe if they bring it back in New York and follow the lead of some of these public, uh, uh, excuse me, charter schools, how do you solve the problem of teachers not knowing how to write it? Fran is in Queens. What do you think, Fran? Yeah, hi, Frank. Frank, I'm older than you are, but I have some very fond memories 
of cursive. It's it's artistic. It's 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 your personality. Everybody ha- learns it the same way. I forget the name of the booklet that we all got to copy from, uh, and yet uh, we could read everybody's handwriting. Although it's you read handwriting, and it's different. It's part of your personality. Part of you comes out in it. And unlike you, I didn't dislike it. I loved it. I was back to the those long pens with the pen nib that we had to change and the little uh, thing on the desk with the ink in it. Uh, I just absolutely adored it. And when I found that they weren't teaching it anymore, it came as a very sad shock. I just think it's a thing of beauty. It's it's artistic. Uh, and we should all know. And uh, the, so many things, like you said, are, are written in cursive. What the heck is wrong with us? We should learn cursive. Uh, Fran, I, I obviously agree, but um, I'm wondering, what do you say to people that might say, look, increasingly the the writing that people do is not pen on paper. It's digital. It's typed. It's via text message. It's email. It's whatever else. And uh, spending you know, 40 minutes a day or even two or three times a week on cursive that's an obsolete skill and uh, a time that could be better spent on something else, maybe STEM say, education. What do you say I, to that? To answer that, I say baloney. I, I think it's a real skill. I think it's a thing of beauty. I think it's something that we should do, like learning art in school, um, which I enjoyed very much. And uh, there's no excuse. I was shocked. I'm still shocked that they're, that that they don't teach it in school anymore. I, I think it's well, sad. and again, it's, it's, make, it's making something of a comeback, which I think is good. By the way, uh, we have one open line now. What I'd love to do is get someone on who doesn't think we should bring back cursive. So if you don't think that we should bring back cursive, we'll put you to the top, the front of the line, unless you're Steve from Manhattan and you're just going to lie about saying that that's what you want to talk about, just so you could say, go, Buchanan, go, Buchanan, go. Well, whatever the case, 800-848-9222, a special line for people who don't think we should bring back cursive. So I was just trying to write in cursive because I haven't done it in I don't know how many years. See, I, th- you see how good this radio show is for you? <laughs> it's causing you to d- brush up on skills that are, have laid dormant for years. Laid dormant. I had to look up how to write a cursive letter G because I didn't have any idea how to do it. Yeah, you want to. Uh, what I'd love to see you do is try to write a Q. I don't think there's anybody that knows how to write a capital uh, cursive Q. Right. I'm thinking about it in my head right now. I can't even think of what yeah, a capital it, it's Q weird. looks it's, like. It's weird. It's almost like a number two from what I remember. All right. Uh, call me and tell me if you don't think you should. we should bring this back. 800-848-9222. Marianne is in Indiana. Hello, Marianne. Hi, Frank. Uh, Hi. That's how I got my job at Indiana University because I had beautiful penmanship. Well, I mean, so do you, but it is, it is a different era now. Do you think cursive is still important? Yes. How come? It gives you a skill and it gives you a skill to get a job still. I mean, if you, if you have cursive, it's really impressive. I think to people and the community service I do, I write grants and I write it in cursive and I usually get them. All right. Well, that's uh, that's great, Mary, and thank you. Lou is on Long Island. Hello, Lou. Yes, I believe in cursive and writing. It expands the mind. I have uh, written so many letters and novels. Well, 
deep into the night and then read them the next morning, and they were terrible. But I still did it. <laughs> uh, have you had any published, Lou? Oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> no. I, hey, well, I, I mean, I no, think it's great. This is like family, um, you know, family history and drama, that sort of thing. Just uh, replaying it in my mind and trying to put it down, you know, on paper. And like I said, the next morning I said, I don't think that's how it happened. <laughs> why? Um, why do you think cursive expands the mind? What exactly does it do that it causes you to expand the mind? Because you have to think about what you're writing first. Okay. You actually have to plan it out ahead. It's not a keyboard. You know, you just you know, and then hit delete, uh, spell check, whatever. I always felt the same way about a typewriter. You really do have to think about what you're writing when you use a typewriter as opposed to a computer. So I could certainly see the same case to be made when it comes to writing as well. 800-848-9222. Dave is in Rock. Hello, Dave. No, I'm in Lockport, New York. Oh, Lockport. Okay. It says Rock, but yeah. uh, we'll take it. I thought maybe it was uh, yeah, Iraq. New York, All right. Yeah. Oh, great. Anyway, yeah. you, are you listening uh, uh, to us on WLVL up there? Uh, actually, I'm listening to, I, I have the app for, uh, you know, WABC. Wonderful. Great. However you listen, we're glad you're listening. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, I remember now, uh, back in 1954, I was in kindergarten. And around the top of the wall, we had all the letters in cursive and in, you know, printing. And, you know, it we learned that just as part of growing up. However, uh, you know, the, the cursive thing, uh, it, it's, it's a flowing thing, and you can stylize it, whatever you do. Uh, but it, it's like uh, it's like phonetics, you know. Uh, nobody teaches phonetics anymore. You used to learn how to sound out a word. You know, yeah, nobody does that anymore. And it's like Latin. Latin is a dead language. But how many languages are based on Latin? You know, so Latin is a basis to learn other languages. You know, so you should should be able to uh, interpret anything within your sphere of knowledge, you know, to. So you understand things. Yeah, that's fair, Dave. Uh, thank you. Uh, give everyone rock my best. Patrick is in Smithtown. Hello, Patrick. Hello, sir. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, my Speaking of a, a dead language, uh, Latin, um, my brother had to do that for to become a physician. And also my family of being of uh, Irish descent, it's a, on a resurgence of Gaelic um, everywhere, speaking, learning in schools. And we should not let this go. And I'm a former school teacher in the New York City uh, school system and, and Long Island. And I, I can hardly read my, my all my books because before the age of, the, of digital technology in, in these giant lecture centers where I went to, I had to scribble. And everything is all attached. And I look back at my notebooks. I can hardly read them now. And it was brought on by my um, um, my uh, my, uh, my teaching um in that in that art, and it should not. Excuse me. My my final say. We should not let that go by. Well, that's, that's part of our heritage. Well, well said, you. Patrick. Thank you. You know, it got me thinking. Maybe we should do a whole Latin show one of these days. Of course, I don't speak Latin. Neither does anybody else. 
But we could fake it, right? And, you know, the good thing about doing a radio segment in a language that no one speaks, like Latin or Klingon, how are people going to know if I'm wrong about what I'm saying? Domine et domini, ascoltate, venio ad vas, cum historia, que me rivera move historia. Did I say anything incorrectly? I'm betting you don't know. All right. Um, in all seriousness, those of you that are holding, we will get to you. A story that we've been following since last June is the story of Ben Darby. We're going to be joined. Uh, ben Darby it was an Alabama cop charged with murder. Well, it looks like Ben's murder conviction has been overturned. We're going to get into it with his wife, Keelan, in just a moment. She's going to give us the latest on this and tell us where, you know, where this case stands now, because this is a case that, as far as I'm concerned, even though it happened, uh, you know, with the Huntsville Police Department, this is something that should be getting nationwide attention. We're going to get into this in a big way. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With Frank Morano. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter. And make believe it came from you. I'm gonna write words so, so sweet. They're gonna knock me off of my feet. A lot of kisses. On the bottom, I'll be glad I got him. I'm gonna smile and say, I hope. Billy Williams, I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter from 1957. Sold over a million records back then, and uh, that was a rare thing in any era, but especially in 1957. All right, um, let me tell you about Ben Darby. You may remember we have uh, we have talked about his case before. He was a well-trained police officer in Huntsville, Alabama, who was forced to make a split-second decision while responding to a 911 call, dangerous 911 call. And his actions that day have not only had ramifications on his life and on the lives of the other people involved in that specific incident, but uh, on all sorts of other people. And I want to highlight this case because I think it highlights what could happen to any police officer anywhere in America. And I think it's also a cautionary tale in terms of dealing with police officers. Now, Ben Darby responded to a 911 call with a threatening suspect. Jeffrey Parker. 
And Jeffrey Parker refused to drop his gun after he was given seven commands to drop it. Not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, but seven separate commands to drop his gun. Ben Darby took the sort of action that police officers are trained to do. And the situation was looked at by the Incident Review Board, as it should be, and the Incident Review Board cleared Ben Darby's actions. Ben's actions were deemed justified, and it was determined that he followed all the applicable policies and laws. But after Ben was cleared, the Madison County District Attorney began to use him as a political football. They offered him all sorts of plea deals, but Ben Darby believed he didn't do anything wrong, so he didn't take a plea. And he ultimately was sentenced to 25 years in prison for a crime that he believes he didn't commit. Where is this case now? Well, here to join us to talk about it is uh, a woman that has been through more than I would ever want to go through. She's a, a distinguished law enforcement officer in her own right and the wife of the Alabama police officer that we're talking about, Ben Darby. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the program, Keelan Darby. Keelan, thanks so much for joining me again. Hey, Frank. Thank you again for having us. Uh, I really can't imagine how challenging this situation has been for you and your family. Uh, give our audience, if they haven't heard our previous discussion, uh, any anything else they need to know about your husband's case and how it came to be, in addition to anything that I just mentioned. Yeah, he did a great job giving a overview of what happened. Um, in 2018, he was employed by Huntsville Police Department. He answered that call. Uh, Jeffrey Parker had the gun pointed to his head when he um, called 911 and said that he was going to blow his brains out. Ben was the third initial officer responding to that scene after first two officers asked for additional units to respond. So um, like you mentioned, I'm also a police officer, so I can attest to the training that we're given in Alabama and nationwide that in a situation that Ben faced that day, Officers are not supposed to go into a house. They're supposed to call that person out because we have more control over the situation that way. We know what's going on outside of a house or outside of a building rather than going in blind, basically. And that was Ben's mindset when he got there was to set a perimeter and call Parker out. And to his shock, both of those officers were inside the house with no protection, no cover, no concealment. Um against Parker and the loaded weapon that he had um, ready to uh, shoot and kill a police officer. Parker had told his neighbor that that was his plan and that that was what he was going to do that day. Um, that that neighbor who was called as a witness during Ben's trial was not allowed to testify because the judge deemed that his testimony was hearsay, which is completely false because it's a direct testimony of that conversation that he had. If I were to go to court to talk about this conversation I'm having with you, that is not hearsay. That's a direct testimony. If one of your listeners were to talk about it, then that would be considered hearsay. So the judge wrongly ruled in that regard. Um, case law that backs police officers from Supreme Court, Graham versus Connor, was not allowed to be 
given to the jury. The jury wasn't allowed to know that Ben was cleared by the incident review board, which also consisted of the district attorney who who ended up later charging him with murder. Um, That district attorney was on the review board that cleared Ben and that did not clear the other two officers. The other two officers had to go through remedial training where Ben did not. Ultimately, like you said, he was uh, found guilty of murder and sentenced to prison for 25 years. He spent 20 months in one of Alabama's worst prisons. And then I went on the warpath to fight for his appeal, just like I'm still doing to this day. Uh, We are going back to court for murder again in December. Even though the higher court unanimously ruled that his uh, murder conviction was a bad conviction, was wrongful. And then, and the, was that on the basis of the, the hearsay testimony or the exclusion of the incident review board decision or both? Um, so it was actually because the trial court judge did not allow the jury to view to view Ben as a police officer. She instructed them to view Ben as a civilian. When quite frankly, police officers are trained, just like you mentioned, to do things and to act certain ways where a civilian is not capable of handling that situation because they're not trained in how to deal with them. And so the the higher court unanimously ruled in a 5-0 decision that it was a bad, um, a wrongful conviction, and they overturned it. The Attorney General, Steve Marshall, had two weeks to object to that, and he has been silent, silent the entire time this has uh, happened. So... Even with all that, the district attorney said, yeah, well, we're going to do it again because it was, quote, just a technicality. So even though they threw out his murder conviction and uh, even though the DA's office was given a pretty significant brushback pitch from the appellate court, the DA is still putting your husband on trial again. Yes. And that's going to be in December. Yeah, we're going. We're expected to go back to trial December 11th. Um, that's when his trial is scheduled, and we expect it to be at least a week, if not longer, of trial. His original trial lasted um, one full week, and that original trial was covered by Huntsville Police Department because the department and the city backed him. So we weren't co- we weren't on the hook for all those legal fees um, ever since. We lost that trial, and he went to prison. We've been on the hook for the appeal. So we've been supported by the Pipeater Foundation, among with many other nonprofits and people across the nation, across the globe, honestly, who have donated towards uh, towards Ben's appeal to fight for this because I can't afford this on my sure. own as a police officer myself. Um, we are hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees trying to make sure that he doesn't go back to prison because police officers are still trained to do exactly what he did five no, years ago. It's absolutely amazing. And and I have no problem calling out uh, uh, police misconduct whenever that occurs as well. But uh, to actually put someone on trial for doing their job and potentially keeping who knows what other passersby safe is to me just astounding. Uh, at what, where is your husband now? Is he is he home? Is he under uh, basically a, a house arrest? What are his bail conditions at this point? Mm-hmm. So he's been home since April thirteenth. Um, he was released from the prison, and he's he's home. He's basically allowed to do anything. He just cannot leave the state of Alabama. So. Um, 
we're free to live our life um, as long as we don't leave the state. And he has been restored all of his rights that were taken from him when he was uh, convicted. So he can vote again. He can he right. do, do everything that, that a, a non-felon can do. That's, right. uh, that's as great. Far as, the, as far as the state is concerned, he's a free, innocent man just as he should be viewed. By the way, if people want to learn a little bit more about this case, they can go to the website standwithdarby.com. You can also donate to the uh, the legal bills that the Dar- that the Darbys are are facing right now. I, I just can't imagine uh, going through something like this. And um I realize that uh, that your focus Keelan has obviously been on your husband's case, but we've seen similar prosecutions in other parts of the country in similar circumstances. Do you think this situation is part of a a trend of prosecuting first responders for what could be political reasons? Absolutely. I think, you know, Ben's stuff happened in 2018, and a lot of these other cases um, happened during that time where it was anti-police, the George Floyd fiasco, all cops are bad, they all need to go to prison, and that's just inherently wrong. There are bad apples in police, just like there are in any profession. You have bad lawyers, you have bad teachers, you have bad doctors, etc. But 99% of police officers are there to help the public. How many times do you see them taking an extra chance to make sure that they can prevent something bad from happening. Just as in Ben's case, he gave Parker seven times to drop the gun. He only had to give him one. Ben didn't want to kill Parker that day. He didn't want to harm Parker. But when Parker turned the gun on Ben and the other two officers, he had to make sure that he and his other officers got home that night. Being a law enforcement officer yourself, how do you navigate the the challenges of your profession, which obviously is is taxing enough as it is, while also dealing with the legal battle that you're facing with your husband? In in our specific uh, situation, I don't work for Huntsville Police Department or the county, Madison County, um, that area. I work for a separate um, jurisdiction and... I know that the jurisdiction and the department that I work for support our police. We've had three officer-involved shootings within the last five years, um, and they've all been backed by the department in the city because the officer didn't do anything wrong. They did exactly as they were trained trained to do, just like Ben did, and he was supported by his department. Um, He just had a district attorney who wanted to be – to to make money off of that of Ben's case and make an example out of him, even though he did his job, is it hard to be a police officer? Yes, and you can any police officer would say that in today's day and age. But the pendulum, I believe, is finally swinging back towards "quote unquote" backing the blue and having our backs with dealing with the public and the craziness that happens every day. The, the media often paints a certain picture or portrays a certain narrative. What's something about your husband that you feel the public might not understand but you think is important for them to know? I think when looking at his case, if you watch the video, it's very quick. It's only 11 seconds from the time that he gets there until the time that he uses force. And I've had multiple people say, well, that doesn't look right, or he rushed in there, or, you know, 11 seconds. He was never fully in control of the situation. 
you have to make split-second decisions as officers, and you can't, as the public, look at that and say, ooh, that doesn't give me the warm and fuzzies. You have to go off of what police officers are trained to do. And the regular Joe Blow citizen doesn't know what we're trained to do because they're not police officers. They haven't gone through our training. And they have to trust that the training that we go through and that we're still being given to this day for that situation is trained for a reason. Um, Ben didn't wake up that day wanting to hurt someone. He went to work every day to his uh, best with his best intention of helping the citizens of Huntsville to make sure that everyone was safe, that bad guys went to jail and good guys were given the help that they needed. And he's not a murderer, just like the police chief has said and backed him. The city has said and backed him. Ben Darby is not a murderer. Ben Darby helped the community that day, even though the citizens may not see it that way. You have to understand that we're trained to do a certain job, and it's not always pretty. It's not always fun, but that's the job that we have to do, just like other professions have their jobs that they have to do. Let me end with this, uh, Keelan, and I hope people do check out the website standwithdarby.com and consider making a uh, a donation. If you had a magic wand, what change would you make within the justice system to ensure that there's a fair and just process for everybody involved, for police officers, for people that are victims of police misconduct, for people that want just safe streets? What would you change about the criminal justice system, given that you've had such a a unique look at it? That's a good question. Um, From a police officer's standpoint, I guess because that's where I'm at in the biggest realm, for people to understand, to ask, hey, can I go through that training or can I see what it's like to be put in that situation before I make a judgment call on as to whether that officer made the right choice or not. Um, And as far as being a victim of a crime, having on the police side, having that understanding, because we go to so many calls, we'll go from a theft call to a burglary, to a murder, to a shooting, and we have to just reset and go and for us to go through the training, which we have seen more and more so of having a better understanding of what it's like to be a victim and to go through such a horrible process and to deal with the outcome afterward. Keelan Darby, I'm wishing you the best of luck. I'm sorry that your family has to go through this, but uh, your husband's certainly lucky to be married to a woman with your strength and, uh, and your loyalty. Appreciate it. Thank you, Frank, for your time and your support. We Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our case, of this case, not our case, uh, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
I wanna defame, but not to cover a news week. Oh well, guess Vegas can't be choosy. Wanted to receive attention from my music. Wanted to be left alone in public, excuse me. But wanting my cake and eat it too. And wanting it both ways. Fame made me a balloon. Cause my ego inflated when I flew see, but it was confusing. Cause all I wanted to do is be the Bruce Lee of loosely abused ink. Monster by uh, Eminem with a little Rihanna as well. I'm dedicating this to my neighbor who uses a monster hacked fire stick of some sort to get all the channels illegally. Um, apparently, I have a son that has given up sleeping when I got home yesterday. It was about uh, it was about six a.m. and I still was not home yet. And my wife, who's never awake at that time, usually or rarely awake, she calls me as I'm driving home and she says, "Where are you?" And she said, "I said I'm about fifteen minutes away." She said, "Can you can you take Carmine when you get home? I have I haven't slept the whole night, and uh, you know I don't know what to do." And I said, "Yes." So she turns off the baby monitor and I. I looked after him when uh, when I got home. He he was up the whole night, up the pretty much the whole night. And then I came home. He had no interest in sleeping. He wanted to play. He wanted to go outside. He wanted to play. He wanted to color. He wanted to do everything in the world except sleep. So I stayed up with him about an hour and a half, maybe even two hours after I normally go to bed. So now I'm exhausted. The only one not tired is him. So then we're thinking, all right, well, maybe he'll maybe he'll have a long nap this afternoon. No nap. Oh. No interest in napping at all. Okay, okay. So around 435 o'clock, that was one of the things he wanted to do. He wanted to watch Coco Melon and his friend JJ. He'll point to the okay, television okay. set and say JJ. Or sometimes he also likes Baby Einstein. He'll say he'll say Beinstein, Beinstein. But so those are his two things, right? But anyway. I'm I'm pushing him in a stroller, and I I could tell around four thirty five o'clock he's starting to just hit the wall. He's starting, and my wife has work to do, so he's now screaming, in you know, not allowing her to get away. So I I had to get him out of the house. I start pushing him in a stroller, which wasn't entirely bad, because I get all these unnecessary telephone calls from people, and so what I do. When he's screaming like crazy in his, uh, you know, in his stroller, I just move my mobile phone closer to him screaming. And then I'm hoping somebody will say, well, it sounds like you got your hands full. I'll let you go. And yet this one guy I was talking to, he's go, and I was doing a favor for someone else. Um, so there's another radio show that wanted, um, Michael Franzese on. I was trying to facilitate that. And uh, they're, they're just going on and on. on, and on. I, I'm sick. Okay, Carmine. So he finally falls asleep in his stroller. Second day in a row that he falls asleep in his stroller while he's walking. So I leave him. Well, no, I didn't leave him. I stayed with him. I bring him outside our front door to just sleep in his stroller. And he slept for maybe about 40 minutes. But I hope he is not becoming one of these children that doesn't want to sleep in his crib. But I think that might be where we are. Two days in a row, he would only fall asleep while I'm pushing him on his stroller. So I don't know what that's about. I'm, I'm glad he eventually fell asleep. But so far, I have gotten no messages from my wife today. I am hoping that, fingers crossed, knock on wood, I am hoping that means today is a better day than the last couple of days were. Because... 
It is not great for my wife's physical health nor mental health to get no sleep, and it's not good for me either. Hey, keep asking questions. Rudy Giuliani surrendering to authorities in Georgia yesterday. He calls the charges an assault on the American Constitution. This will be proven to be, like all the rest, a complete hoax and a lie. One of the worst, actually. Giuliani, along with former President Trump, are among 19 defendants indicted on charges in connection with the case involving alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Those allegations, those allegations are totally false. Giuliani said he will file a motion for removal. Former President Trump expected to surrender later today in Georgia. Meantime, the Post reporting former President Trump will host a $100,000 plate dinner for Rudy Giuliani next month. The event is being organized by the Giuliani Defense Political Action Committee, that according to CNBC. A man is under arrest for allegedly attacking a mother and her two young children with a hammer in Brooklyn yesterday afternoon. NYPD Chief John Shell said the 43-year-old mother died and her children are in critical condition. We removed to a local hospital, and like I said, the mother passed away, and the five-year-old son and the three-year-old daughter are fighting for their lives. Frank Marano and the other side of Midnight up next on 77 WABC. Your forecast on the Ramsey Mazda Weather Center, increasing clouds overnight lows in the mid-60s. Later today for your Thursday, cloudy showers and thunderstorms likely highs in the mid-70s. I'm Bob Brown for 77 WABC. Remember, the news never stops at WABCradio.com. The Other Side of Midnight. 77 Local Spotlight. Well, 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 folks, hold on to your hats because I've got a tale that'll make you raise an eyebrow and then some. Get this, over 13,000 rent-stabilized apartments here in New York City have been sitting empty, gathering dust for not one, but two whole years. Two years! Now, before you go thinking this is some sort of bizarre urban legend, let me assure you it's as real as a New York bagel with uh, cream cheese, lox, and, and tomato. This is according to a review of state data by the Gothamist. Call me old-fashioned, but I've always believed that apartments are meant to be lived in, not just held on to like some sort of a trophy collection. I mean, come on. We are in the midst of a housing crisis that's hotter than a subway platform in August. And yet, here we are with thousands of rent-stabilized units just languishing in the shadows. It's like keeping a race car locked up in the garage. What's the point? Look, I get it. Owning property is a big investment, and a lot of the landlords have their reasons. But let's be real, folks. Affordable housing is like gold dust in this city. We're talking about people who are struggling to make ends meet, who need a roof over their heads and a place to call home. It's time to stop treating these apartments like forgotten relics and start putting them to good use. Now, I'm all for a good debate. And I'm all for capitalism, but let's cut to the chase here. Warehousing these low-cost units is like leaving a gourmet meal to rot in the refrigerator. It's a waste, plain and simple. If you've got a rent-stabilized apartment, it's your civic duty to help ease the housing crunch. Let's get these places rented out to people who need them, who deserve a fair shot at affordable living in this wild concrete jungle that we call home. So, New York, in my view... It's time to roll up our sleeves, 
dust off those cobwebs and put those vacant apartments to work. Let's turn this housing crisis into a housing success story, because when we come together, when we use our resources wisely, we're not just solving problems. We're building a better, fairer and more vibrant city for everyone. So let's turn those empty spaces into spaces of hope, of life, of opportunity. It's time to make a real difference one apartment at a time. I hope, I don't know if we need to go the governmental route. It would be nice if the owners of these properties just put them up for rent themselves. But I hope we can get those keys jingling in the doors of those empty units pronto. Beam me up. To be continued. other side of midnight i know that you're listening to radio now so chances are like me you are probably a more of a radio person than a television person however i am betting that there is a pretty good chance that you have seen television once or twice before And that's why I want to ask you this question, because I just finished reading this incredible article in Rolling Stone. And if you want to hear about the uh, presidential debate in Milwaukee last night, we're going to talk about it with Ben Dieter coming up in about 20 minutes. My view uh, is that without Donald Trump at the debate stage, the guy's supported by the overwhelming plurality of Republicans. I think now it's actually a majority. What's the point? What's the point? You're going to have a debate without the leading guy? I mean, so we'll get into it, but we'll also do some other things. In any event, um, I read this article in Rolling Stone about the 50 worst TV decisions in history. In my view, it's clear what number one was. And my what I would have said as my number one, it did make the list, but it was not number one, not number two, not number three, not number four, not number five. It was, uh, I'll tell you where it was, I gotta find it, but it, it, yeah, it was number 37. Number 37 was my pick for the biggest TV, the worst TV decision of all time. What I would have said, and I would have said that the worst TV decision of all time was canceling Star Trek after only three seasons. You talk about a franchise that has endured for more than six decades. Star Trek is just timeless. And... They canceled it after three seasons. So that's not number 37 on this Rolling Stone list of the worst TV decisions ever made. And it actually lumps it in with Gilligan's Island. It says that canceling both Star Trek and Gilligan's Island after three seasons is the 37th worst 
television decision of all time. Number 50 is also an interesting one, and it's one that I have to be honest, and I follow this situation pretty closely. The 50th, according to Rolling Stone, the 50th worst TV network decision of all time was to allow Mike Richards to anoint himself as host of Jeopardy. Mike Richards was the producer of Jeopardy, and he played a new role. He did what I call a full Dick Cheney. He played a role in the search for a host, and then shockingly, what happened? He picked himself, which is precisely what Dick Cheney did in uh, in 2000 when George W. Bush put him in charge of the search for a vice president. And then it t- came out that he had kind of rigged the process. It also came out that... Um, that he made some some inopportune comments on a podcast. Maybe he even uh, treated some models poorly during the Price is Right days. And he stepped down as the host of Jeopardy, Jeopardy after taping five shows in a single day. The guy lasted as the host of Jeopardy for one day. He is the Anthony Scaramucci of Jeopardy. This, um, so that, as they say, the 50th worst TV network decision of all time. The I'll re, I'll give you the the kind of the top ten, okay? And because I'm not going to go through all fifty, but I think it's an interesting list. David Caruso leaving NYPD Blue after one season. I would absolutely agree with that. That is an awful decision. Number nine. <clears throat> speaking of George W. Bush, the networks calling Florida for George W. Bush in the year 2000. Number eight. I didn't know this, but I would agree with this. HBO, TNT, Showtime, FX, all turning down Breaking Bad. What? Breaking Bad, which was a phenomenal program for, uh, I believe it was AMC. No, uh, AMC, I think. They, they passed. They all passed, all these networks. And then they, the TNT Two passed. They went over to HBO, HBO passed, they went over to FX, they passed. Then, um, I don't agree with where this is on the list, but because I actually watched this show, and I don't think, it was bad, but over the last 30 years, it has developed a whole new mythology about how bad it was. What Rolling Stone says is the seventh biggest disaster in the history of television is giving Chevy Chase a talk show, a TV talk show that Fox wanted to be in the late night game. CBS at that point had David Letterman. NBC had uh, The Tonight Show. ABC was doing just fine with Nightline. Fox wanted in. And they tried a few different versions over the years. And one of the things they tried was the Chevy Chase talk show. They had some ideas for a theme song for my new show. Ron, let me hear what you have. He's Chevy Chase. He's a heck of a guy. He makes you laugh. Hold it, hold it. Hold it. Save your butt kissing for your next boss, okay? Fred, what do you have? I don't know how he got his own show. He ain't very funny, but I... Get... Let me hear yours again, Ron. He's Chevy Chase. A heck of Chevy a guy. Chase. Coming in September to Fox. He makes you cry. Growing on me. Chevy Chase. You know, I I remember this, and maybe because I was 30 years younger than I am right now, maybe I didn't know how bad it was. It was not entertaining, 
But they had great guests. You had guests like Robert De Niro, Martin Short, Dennis Hopper, Dan Aykroyd. I think it was worth it just for the guests. I remember they even had one show, one segment that I found interesting about a, a hot dog expert and a guy that ate all these different hot dogs. I thought it was fine. Uh, it was horrible. W- w- why was it so horrible? I, I remember that first episode because they made such a big deal about it that the guests were gushing over Chevy Chase, like they gave him a talk show. The fact that they renamed it the Chevy Chase Theater, and then when they canceled it, they had to paint over it. (laughs) That's fair. Uh, So you agree with this placement of number seven? A hundred percent. Okay. Number six, I absolutely agree with. This is um, NBC screwing up the Tonight Show transition from Jay Leno to Conan O'Brien. Bill Carter wrote a terrific book about that, which is, if you're interested in media or television or entertainment, it's an absolute must-read. It's really good. Number five is uh, Roseanne torching her career with a racist tweet. Um, That's the description that Rolling Stone gave it. Roseanne had a great talk show, and then it came back, so it it was a a big hit in its first run. Your coffee? Isn't there coffee every morning? (laughs) Yes. In the 15 years we've been married, has there ever been one morning where there wasn't any coffee? No. Then why do you have to ask me every morning if there's coffee? Is there toast? So it was a funny show. It did very well in its first run, and then it came back. They brought it back, and it was doing very well. It was number one in the ratings. And my wife and I watched it, and we don't watch very many sitcoms. And you know what it was? It was First of all, it was genuinely funny. Two, it was a show that really did appeal to all of America. You kind of get the impression that a lot of what's on television, it's designed to appeal to people in Manhattan and Malibu. This is a show that you could watch and laugh at if you're a Trump supporter living in middle America or if you're a Hillary Clinton supporter living in New York. And um, clearly, I think if you have a gig like that, you should not be tweeting. Just don't don't tweet. Don't tweet. Number four, I think this is a little high on the list. I would not have put this this higher than Star Trek. Well, you remember all the jokes when Norm MacDonald was hosting Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live? You remember all the jokes that he made about O.J. Simpson? In his book, O.J. Simpson says that he would have taken a bullet or stood in front of a train for Nicole. Man, I'm going to tell you, that is some bad luck when the one guy who would have died for you kills you that's probably... <laughs> you don't get worse luck than that so the way uh, rolling stone describes it number four is norm mcdonald fired from saturday night live over hilarious oj simpson jokes before i tell you the other three let me know what you think is the biggest tv network decision disaster of all time the worst TV network decision of all time. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Shout out to uh, all of our listeners listening on uh, Chalk 1400 WOND in South Jersey. We love you in South Jersey. Number three is, I think, certainly a, a good one, and I think it's appropriately placed. Fox passing on The Sopranos, which uh, I did know and I think is certainly, you know, a big mistake. Number two is ridiculous. It is not a television selection. It's blatant, blatant politics. Number two, the what they list as the um, 
second worst TV network decision of all time is NBC turning Donald Trump into a television titan. And basically, they they say that uh, The Apprentice and NBC turned Donald Trump from a punchline and a guy that was hemorrhaging cash in places like Atlantic City to a titan, a television titan who not only had money but gave off this this aura of authority. And that, they say, propelled him to the presidency. And obviously, Rolling Stone, you know what their politics are, so they were not happy about that. But I think that's ridiculous. The other things that they mentioned were all television decisions. They're taking issue with it because it was a successful show. They're taking issue with it for political reasons. And the number one reason, the number one, according to Rolling Stone, worst television decision of all time. I really can't speak to this because I've actually never seen this show, although I am told it's great. What they say is the number one worst TV network decision of all time is NBC canceling Freaks and Geeks. They say that uh, few shows in TV history captured the agony of adolescence better than Freaks and Geeks. The series creator drew inspiration from his own childhood in suburban Michigan. And uh, apparently NBC pulled the plug before they could even air all the episodes they shot for the first first season. If a show wasn't pulling in friends-like numbers, the network simply wasn't interested. A huge cult following then grew around Freaks and Geeks geeks over the past two decades along with that questions about where the show could have gone in seasons two three and beyond you know what i was thinking no one remembers this show there was this show that aired about 23 years ago i loved it i it was on the usa network it lasted less than one season so i probably was the only person that loved it it was on the usa network it didn't make the list because i don't think anybody even remembers this show but there was a show that i thought was very cute called manhattan az and they, they didn't even air the final five episodes of this show. That's how much of a disaster it was. But I was thinking of that show recently. And, you know, I remember speaking about it at the time that it was on. And I was at my my cousin Liz's uh, house. And we were in her backyard at the time it was on. And I was telling everybody. They had friends over. I was saying, this show is hysterical. This is going to be the the greatest show. I didn't say the greatest show, but it's going to be a very successful show. And they had a friend of theirs over, and they said, oh, wow, it sounds great. What network is it on? I said, it's on the USA Network. Now, in those days, the USA Network didn't even have shows, original shows. It was just reruns and made-for-TV movies. And my uh, cousin Liz's friend said, oh, good for them. That's great that they have a big hit show like that. Well, it shows you what I know about television because it got canceled within two weeks. And they have, I still think, five episodes that have never been aired. I'd love it if they brought that show back, even in rerun form. All right, 800-848-9222. If you have a comment on um, what the biggest TV network decisions are in terms of disastrous. Did you look at, I'm going to link to this list on my Facebook page if you want to read it. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's Facebook.com slash Morano fan. And uh, if you want to read it, see who what's listed where and then comment. You're welcome to. Did you look at this list, Matt Place? Yeah, I looked at it. I I, I agree with number one because I have seen episodes of Freaks and Geeks because it is uh, streaming. I just look at the cast of the people that are in there. And what careers they had afterwards. You're talking about Seth Rogen, James Franco, Jason Siegel, Busy Phillips, Linda Cardellini. They all became big stars. 
Yeah. And they were all true. in that one show. And I did watch it because of that. And, yeah, they did make a mistake. It was a pretty good show. Yeah, no, that's fair. What they list as number 41 is uh, Geraldo Rivera taking viewers inside Al Capone's vault. You know, was that a, that big of a disaster? Because a lot of people watched. It was certainly good for Geraldo's career. People still joke about it. But the next day, he was deluged with offers. If uh, Geraldo's going to come on this show in September, so after Labor Day. We're gonna, we'll talk to him about that. He has no problem talking about it. And um, number 36, I also agree with. ABC giving viewers way too much who wants to be a millionaire. So uh, it's a good one. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, hi, Frank. You know, I was looking at some of the old uh, programs from Hulu initially came out, and, and it was free. And uh, it does look like, besides Star Trek, some of the other science fiction shows could have ran longer, like Land of the Giants, uh uh, you know, things, Time Tunnel. It looked like they were kind of unique and, and atmospheric, and they should have ran longer. It looks like they switched the Darrens on Bewitched. That must have upset people. But wasn't so I thought, other I thought, of act- I thought yeah, that I, was about uh, Dick York making the decision to leave. Okay. Okay. But did that upset some of the people? Like, well, the shows where people got upset about, like, a key actor being uh, changed. Yeah, well, I think so, right? But sometimes you can change an actor and it doesn't make a big difference. You know, on Roseanne, for instance, which I mentioned, they changed, they had an actress who played Becky. They got rid of Becky and replaced her with another Becky, and she was just as fine. And then they got rid of her and brought the old Becky back. That was fine. Uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, they changed Aunt Viv. The show still was fine. It was never that great a show. And honestly, I don't have a a strong preference between the two Darrens on Bewitched. Dick York, Dick Sergeant, Sergeant York, what's the difference? They were all fine. No one's tuning in for for Darren Stevens. I I don't think think anybody even realized the the, the Darrens switched. Because they kind of looked alike a little bit. A little bit, a but little bit. The best thing about the Roseanne and the Beckys was when they brought back the original Becky. Roseanne, the Roseanne, she walks in and Roseanne goes, where you been? That was funny. Yeah, that I remember good. that. That was funny. 800-848-9222. Uh, what is the biggest TV network disastrous decision in history? Uh, David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, Good morning. Um, I've got two, if I could. Uh, One of them is serious and the other one isn't. I'll start with the serious one. Um, Suzanne Somers deciding Mm. to leave uh, Three's Company. Um, I thought that was because she basically wanted as much money as John Ritter, which they wouldn't give her. Um, And her husband was her manager, which was another big mistake. Uh, I thought that was not a good uh, decision by the network. I mean, I guess they could have given her more money, but they didn't want to fold. Um, and the show definitely changed after she left. It um, definitely other- did, but uh, I, you think um, when you say that was a disaster, you think it was a disaster for the show or for Suzanne Somers or for both? Oh, it was definitely a disaster for Suzanne Somers. I mean, mm-hmm. her career was never the same after that, and I can I could see why she was not considered to be reliable after that. Um, I mean, she did have one hit show, I think, after that. She's the sheriff or something. Well, no, she had a few. Well, first of all, she she had um, Step by Step, which was very oh, popular. Right, right. And then she had a whole empire with the Stairmaster. Okay. She, yeah, I think she I mean, made hundreds of, hun- oh, Thigh Master, not Stairmaster, Thigh Master. 
Okay, um, I'll, I'll take. But you're right. The show was never that. the same after that. Okay, right. and the and the other one was, and I don't remember the network. It might have been NBC. They canceled a show called Manimal halfway through its first and only <laughs> season. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It was actually not bad. I I did not see it. Uh, it's become such a punchline though uh, that uh, that I can't help but laugh. I never saw it, and you liked it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I was a kid. I mean, I, as a kid, I enjoyed it. I don't think I would – well, I can't see it yeah, now, but that, that, I, don't right. think I, I don't think I would enjoy it today because the whole concept does sound pretty silly. Yeah, that's Thanks. kind of the way that I feel about uh, Nightmare Cafe, which I enjoyed for the two or three episodes with Robert Unglund that I, that I saw, but I don't know that I would these days. Thanks, David. You know what they list on this list on number 26? NBC, and I would probably agree with this, NBC poaching Megyn Kelly from Fox. You remember what a big deal NBC made about Megyn Kelly? They were going to put her in daytime, and they were going to conquer daytime. She was going to be the new Oprah in daytime, and they were going to put her on Sunday nights. She was going to be the new 60 Minutes on Sunday nights, and she was going to do all sorts of breaking news cards. Well, it did not work out well for them at all, at all. I kind of agree with this one, and this is a decision that I supported but and I'll explain why I kind of agree with this decision here. Would they list as number twenty-four, the twenty-first, twenty-fourth worst TV network decision of all time, is making Rush Limbaugh, ESPN, making Rush Limbaugh a football commentator? I loved Rush as a football commentator. Now, obviously, maybe I'm not the right person to ask because I was such a fan of Rush on the radio. But I thought he was great. The The issue was, look, Rush says controversial things. He says controversial things for three hours a day. And lo and behold, they put him on ESPN, and he says something controversial. Maybe they shouldn't, if that's not the direction that ESPN wanted to go, maybe they shouldn't have done that. I think the problem with ESPN and what they did was firing him. I wish they would have stuck with him. So... Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Patricia is in Brooklyn. Hello, Patricia. Hey, good morning, Frank. I think when ABC aligned itself with Disney, the whole station just became nonsense. It's all preachy garbage. And this is why I will not own a TV anymore. And I only listen to the radio, talk radio, WABC, and of course, Mark Simone. <laughs> Well, I just thought I'd tell you that. Yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not familiar with the individual that you mentioned, but uh, it's certainly great that you uh, that you listen to talk radio. If we had uh, five million more people like you, especially in the overnight hours, we would be in business. All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. If you want to comment, I'll mention a few of these others. Um, one of the ones they mentioned, and I don't agree with this at all. Number nineteen, Seinfeld killing off George's fiance Susan. In a heartless fashion, I I think that was that was fine. I mean, I thought it was funny, and I thought it was okay the way they did it. I mean, it was a heartless group of people. I thought it was fine. I um and clearly they didn't like working with that actress. So another Star Trek one. See, this is what I don't understand. I don't know how this this gets listed as number fifteen, and the decision to cancel Star Trek gets listed as number thirty-seven. They list as number fifteen. You know, uh, Dr. Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation, Gates McFadden, they they list 
the decision to fire Gates McFadden before Star Trek season, Star Trek The Next Generation season two, as the 15th worst TV network decision of all time. I mean, it's, I agree that it was a mistake, although I kind of like Dr. Pulaski, but is it really a bigger mistake than canceling Star Trek, the original series? I don't think so. 800-848-9222. I also disagree with this one, and uh, I'll take a couple of your calls. They list continuing The Office without Steve Carell as the 13th biggest TV network disaster of all time, or the worst TV network decision of all time. I thought that The Office was fine after after Steve Carell left. I enjoyed the season with James Spader. I thought they did some interesting things. I thought the Kathy Bates role was interesting. I thought it was very creative. Um, I don't think that was a disaster at all. What was not listed, at least I didn't see it, in a similar vein, the decision to keep this show news radio going after Phil Hartman died, that was a mistake. That should have been on the list. And if I was making the list, it would be on there. Neil on Staten Island, what do you have for us, Neil? I got a double, Frank. The first one is Chancellor and Tucker Carlson. Oh, okay, okay. I mean, uh, that's not going to be on Rolling Stone's list, but I would agree with that. That's one of the finest shows ever. And a finer show than that, Frank, which was the real disaster, is the canceling of the Pee Wee Herman show. He had the best show art for kids ever. I loved watching that with my kids. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a great show, too. But when, when you get caught in what was at the time a big scandal, which was sort of salacious and sexual in nature. How does the network keep him on there at, when he's appealing to children? I, I don't think kids had any idea what he was doing or what he did. Yeah, I, 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 I hear you. I, I hear you, Neil. And look, I, I think it's, you know, he certainly, I would hate that his life is defined by one incident. We We all make mistakes, and I think everybody should be forgiven. But the parents knew what happened, right? So I don't know. I think you'd have a lot of parents that had some qualms about letting their children watch that. We'll, we'll squeeze in one last one here. Phil is in Missouri. Hello, Phil. Hey, Frank. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I always thought that uh, that on Three's Company, Jack should have married Janet and not uh, Mary Cataret was the actress. I can't remember what her name was on the show. But Jack, if Jack married Janet, I think the show – probably would have carried on for a lot longer. It just she seemed like the one that kind of that was strong enough to go go with Jack and it just I don't know, I just thought it was it was a great show that they they canceled a little early. How many years did Three's Company run? It was about 7 or 8 seasons, right? It was a while and they had a lot of spin-offs like The Ropers and there was That's a right. number. I was I think there was another one too where they I, I can't remember Jeffrey uh Castlebaum I think his name was. He was another one that had a a show off of that as well, I think, if I remember right. Yeah, but, well, they had Three's yeah. a Crowd, right? I remember. Yeah, then, that's right. Which um, they uh, that was the one where um, I think John Ritter was actually on that show. If I, yeah, John Ritter was still that on was the a show. spinoff of Three's Company. It's like Three's yeah, Company. Yeah, that's what I said. Three's yeah, Company. That's what he's ended, talking about. And then Three's a Crowd. Yeah, that's what he. That's what he's right. talking about. The spinoffs. And, and the Ropers is listed as number sixteen. As a mistake? Yeah, as the Ropers quitting Three's Company for their ill-fated spinoff is listed as number 16. Yeah, oh, I yeah that's another that. one. I, I don't agree with that. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed, enjoyed the, the Ropers. Hey, Frank, can I add another one? Sure. 
well, I always thought this is just my. I always thought it was odd. Like, remember Fonzie and Happy Days was cool, and he could get the women yeah. and blah blah blah. I always just thought it was odd that Mr. Cunningham would let a guy like that live above his garage. You know, it is. I don't know. And then leave him leave his wife home alone all day with Fonzie. I'm like, you you think Fonzie would have uh, would have swept Mrs. Cunningham, Mrs. C off of her off of her feet? Uh, yeah, Mrs. C. Right. She would have all oh, like putty in his hands, I guess. Maybe right? maybe that's why she was so nice to him. You never know. That's a good yeah, one. I never right. thought of that, Phil. Thank you. All right. Hey, um, we'll we'll get into some other some other stuff in just a minute. And um, if you want to continue to be heard on this, we'll get to your calls a little later. Eight hundred eight four. Eight ninety two twenty two. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead, the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, it is, even though it's still dark out, it is officially the morning after, the morning after the first Republican presidential primary debate. This, of course, was a Trumpless debate. You're going to be hearing about this probably all day, maybe even until the next debate or the next Trump indictment, whichever comes first. But we are very fortunate to have eyes and ears on the ground. And it's someone who is no stranger to one of our favorite affiliates, the mighty 990 KWAM in Memphis, Ben Dieter, award-winning correspondent for the Todd Starnes Show and KWAM in Memphis. He is live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and was there for the debate. Ben, it's great to have you on the program. Thank you. Frank, it's a pleasure. I'll tell your listeners, you wake me up every morning. How cool is that in Memphis? I do the morning show, as you mentioned, where you, you're affiliated with, and I drive into work so ungodly early in the morning, but you wake me up every single morning in Memphis, Tennessee. I have to wake up at the ungodly hour of 3, 4 in the morning, so I'm driving into work, half awake, I turn on the Mighty 990, and there you are, broadcasting from the Big Apple all the way to the Bluff City. So uh, thank you for uh, you. Well, thank you. It beats what we usually hear, that I'm putting people to sleep. That's very kind. How is the show being received down there, Ben, amongst all the uh, the Memphis insomniacs? Uh, some folks might have uh, thought that uh, I was a little too much of a fast-talking New Yorker to be welcomed by uh, by, Mem- by the Memphis audience. How is it? Be- Do you guys like it down there? How? What, what kind of feedback are you? Well, a lot of your listeners are truck drivers, so that's that's an interesting sell and a tough sell because they're all driving I-40 into Arkansas, really into Missouri. So you you have those late red-eyed guys that are in the 18-wheelers. They actually like it, and what I like about your lineup is you do not mirror the rest of our programming, i.e., I've heard your takes on some of these candidates that I'm sure we'll jump into in the GOP debate tonight, and you have a different opinion, and I think that's healthy to hear different perspectives, and it keeps people. They don't want to hear Todd Starnes, Ben Dieter, and the same Ben Dieter and Todd Starnes 
all day, every day. We've got to have some Frank in there. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, Todd is a great guy, and uh, I'm glad that uh, he's uh, brought uh, KWAM back to its uh, former glory, and his show is just terrific all over the country. Hey, um, so you were, you're in Milwaukee right now. Before we get into the substance of the debate, this obviously was a big deal because the leading candidate, Donald Trump, chose not to participate in it. What sense did you get about what effect that had on people's interest in the debate. Did you get the sense that people were still interested in the debate, even though Trump wasn't participating? There's no question that they were. I I would like to jump on here and say, listen, Trump still has a mighty grasp on the Republican Party, and he does, and that no one would tune into the Fox News debate, but they did. I I think the numbers will show that. I don't think there'll be the ratings that Fox had maybe back in 2015 when we first met Donald Trump as as a presidential hopeful. You remember that moment, Big Red Tie Center of the States got into it with Megyn Kelly. They pulled in, I think, like 24 million viewers that evening. I don't think we'll see those numbers, but there was a lot of uh, speculation as to what would go down in Milwaukee tonight, and that alone gets people turning on the cable. I can I can tell you here in the spin room that I covered the event at, you know, all of the press, national, local, you name it, digital, no one was watching the the Twitter interview, the sit-down with President Trump and Tucker Carlson, they were all watching that monitor because that's what was happening and happening live, Frank. I noticed the crowd's reactions to when uh, certain candidates said certain things. It seemed like, for the most part, a very pro-Trump crowd. Every time Hutchinson said something that was negative towards Trump, the crowd applauded, uh, booed, rather. Every time uh, Ramaswamy said something positive towards Trump, the crowd applauded. Obviously, Christie repeatedly attacked Trump, and the crowd let him have it. How, who made up this crowd? How did people get tickets to this debate? Were they um, individual uh, individual campaigns distributing them, or did they get to be in the crowd by some other means? Well, I was out there when the gates opened up for the first time, and all of these voters got to walk in. And it's not just guests, voters. There are aides to the president. There are surrogates or to these presidential candidates, excuse me. But... I saw a lot of Trump supporters walking in their red hats. They were just your typical locals here in Milwaukee. And a lot of them can apply for things like this. It doesn't just show up on their doorstep or in their their mailbox. They'll actually go through a little bit of a process pulled by RNC officials and get in here. I think they said 4,000 people. But I will say I'll give you behind-the-scenes looks at, at what happened before the debate even occurred. You had a lot of Trump supporters showing up outside the event. They did not have a press badge. They did not have a guest Mm. badge. They were just there to make it known that there is only one front runner in this race, and it's President Trump. That being said, among folks that watched the debate itself, uh, who did you get the impression were the biggest winners tonight? Who did you get the the impression might have moved the needle one way or or another? Who helped their campaigns with their performance last night? I think we could give a big win to Nikki Haley, Ambassador Haley. She moved the needle, I think, in the right ways. She really had some strong moments, specifically when it comes to foreign policy, also the issue of transgender men competing in women's sports knocked it out of the park. He got some standing ovations, and I didn't see that with any of the other candidates. Uh, I'll say DeSantis 
I know his campaign officials had come out early yesterday morning talking to Fox News Digital saying DeSantis will be the number one target of tonight's debate or, or last night's debate. And it just wasn't that way at all. I don't think he was the number one target. I think it was Vivek Ramaswamy, mm. which might be winner number two. But then there were moments where I think the crowd was getting a little over Vivek, and, and there are some reasons that we can get into for that. And what about the biggest losers? Who really hurt themselves? Well, I think some of the candidates, respectfully, are, are just irrelevant. I mean, they're polling so disastrously low. I think of Asa Hutchison. I mean, some of the answers he was, or, or, or some of the answers he was giving, were just so flat with the pulse of GOP primary voters. Ron DeSantis, I don't think he did terrible. I don't think he did what he needed to do. I just don't think he was there. I think that he came across very scripted, Mm. at times agitated and nervous. I caught up with Candace Owens um, after she was in the spin room after the debate, and she said, listen, we don't know where he stands on the issues. One moment he is anti the DOJ because they're going after and criminalizing President Trump. Then on the debate stage last night when all of the candidates were asked to raise a hand if they would go on the record pardon President Trump if they were elected when he's uh, if or when he is criminally convicted. And if you notice, Frank, he kind of looked around, kind of put his finger in his mouth, put it up in the air, checked the pulse, see what everybody else was doing, and then he raised his hand. That's the issue with Ron DeSantis. Voters don't know where he's at, and he showed that again, that he doesn't really know on some of these big issues. Yeah, that was my impression. I thought, uh, and I know uh, debating has never been Ron DeSantis's strength generally, but I thought he gave a very weak performance. I also didn't get the impression that DeSantis had any sort of a strategy in this debate. I mean, uh, clearly Ramaswamy's strategy seemed to be to appeal to uh, Trump supporters. Uh, Hutchinson and Christie, their strategy was to go all in after Trump. Christie added the element of going after Ramaswamy. But if someone asked me, what was DeSantis doing last night? I don't know that I could uh, tell them what he was doing. Did you get the impression that DeSantis had any sort of a goal in mind during the debate? You raise an excellent point, and I think your analysis is spot on. Now, his campaign had said yesterday morning that his goal was to tout his conservative record, one that he's got a lot of praise from, from Trump supporters in Florida. And you saw that. I think if you're asking me what was his strategy last night, he was trying to refer back to action. When I was governor, I did this. For example, crime. I thought he did well on that answer where he said, here's where I went after these rogue prosecutors. You're in New York. You know the crime problem is a a big issue for voters in this upcoming election. And he said, there I removed two rogue prosecutors as governor of Florida and as president. I'll do it again. The moderators were on him, though. They knew that strategy going into the debate, and they would pull him back to the topic at hand and say, no, 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 no. Wait, what is your actual opinion on this issue? And that's where he floundered. Uh, People that listen to the show, and I know that you listen, you know that I'm no fan of uh, Governor Chris Christie since long before this presidential campaign. Uh, That being said, I was expecting Christie to uh, go into this debate last night and just make it the anti-Trump show, which he did do to some extent. I didn't necessarily expect him to go after Ramaswamy to the extent that, uh, that he did. 
did last night. Were you surprised that uh, that Christie went after Ramaswamy so aggressively? And is Ramaswamy uh, approaching the place where De- uh, DeSantis has been this whole campaign as the number two in this campaign behind Trump? It's a very good question. Chris Christie, I mean, I think he made himself very clear that he is the anti-Trump candidate in the race. Obviously, we all know politics is reality. We can speak in hypotheticals. Hypotheticals, the guy just is not going to win this nomination. So why was he up there? There were moments where he did talk about his record as being the only electable candidate. He made the comparison that it was only him on stage that was able to beat a pretty popular Democrat in a blue state. So is that a pitch? I mean, it wasn't a a Trump attack, so maybe one of his better moments on the debate stage tonight. But for for that back and forth with Vivek, I thought was very interesting. They came right out of the gate. You have Mm. Vivek saying, hey, hello, everyone. My name is Vivek. I'm the new kid, and I'm an outsider. And that's when Chris Christie just interrupted and said, that's the problem. We don't need any more people like you. You remind me of Barack Obama. Everybody remember him? And uh, that got a lot of play tonight. Does any of this matter? If we're having a debate with uh, the leading candidate by a lot, not a little, not even participating, does this matter? Is anybody's vote affected by what happened last night? I don't I don't think so. I just don't think it's going to move the needle that much. A lot of people thought maybe if DeSantis has a super strong evening, he'll do well going into the caucus in Iowa, maybe New Hampshire. He didn't do that tonight. So now what? President Trump in his base, they're still locked in. And I didn't see anyone tonight other than maybe Vivek Ramaswamy that could change some minds. And, And Vivek is doing this very smart. But then again, If he went on record tonight and said President Trump is the best president we've had in modern American history, then why are you running to unsee him? Right, right. That's a question. question. That's a question I've had for a number of the candidates that have appeared on uh, on this show as well. I think that's a that's a good question. Hey, uh, Ben, we're talking with Ben Dieter, award winning correspondent for the Todd Starnes Show and for our uh, affiliate, uh, the Mighty Nine Ninety KWAM in Memphis. He's uh, live in Milwaukee right now. Describe the scene in the spin room for us. What goes on after the debate with something like this? Well, it's a frenzy, and I was right in the center of it. So what will happen is they'll start sending candidates into Media Row. Now, Media Row is sectioned off. There is the spin room, and that is where you'll see candidates go into. They have direct access there, and they're surrogates to talk to bigger networks. So the Fox News set was up there. You have Sean Kellyanne Conway, Sean Hannity, that is, all of the Fox News talent getting direct access to those candidates. Now, the rest of the press corps, they are in media row, but it is sectioned off. What is very interesting is who made an appearance tonight? Trump surrogates, but they were barred from going into the spin room to talk to the big dogs. Kimberly Guilfoyle, Donald Trump Jr. show up. They talk to a lot of local reporters and really make the president's case. His, his father's case, which was my dad was the winner of tonight's debate. My dad is being snubbed by Fox News Channel. It's not the other way around. Me and my girlfriend are as well. 
they will not let us on their air. And he also said they're barring us from walking just a couple feet over past a, a little barrier and, and speaking to the big press. It, it really was a fascinating whirlwind happening right after the debate. It was reported that some of the Trump aides that were attending this debate were whining and dining some of the journalists, even from media sources that aren't at all friendly to Trump, like the New York Times, CNN, etc., with treats like pudding snack packs, which were designed to mock Ron DeSantis. Ben, did you get your hands on one of those pudding snack packs? No, I didn't. And I'm furious about it. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get cheese. And this was my first time in Wisconsin, for God's sake. No, I'm leaving a bit disgruntled. Don't leave without cheese, Ben. Don't leave without cheese. (laughs) I will try my best to grab some before I fly back to Memphis tomorrow. Last question, and I know you're you're basically running on fumes and running around the clock here, and I appreciate that. But there's always narratives that emerge after these debates. You know, we saw the narrative that took hold in the uh, presidential primary debates four years ago when it looked like Biden was uh, disoriented, and that narrative quickly emerged. We've seen these narratives emerge in different primary campaigns before. If you were to put your finger on one narrative that's going to emerge after last night's debate, it sounds like what I'm hearing you say might be the impressive showing of Ramaswamy. Is that fair or is there another narrative that you see taking shape in the days and weeks that uh, follow this debate? I think Ramaswamy had a very strong night, I think, for a lot of GOP primary voters that sit at home. They don't do what we do every single day. They met him for the first time. Mm. Got to ask that question to him, actually. Hey, what what did you make of tonight's debate? His response was, America met Vivek tonight. And I think a lot of a lot of his uh, uh, or that could show up in their polling. Excuse me. And then the other thing is just a lot of disappointed DeSantis hopefuls that really thought he would come out here and shine big last night. And that just didn't Mm. happen. And then third, the biggest narrative is this changed nothing in the race for the Oval Office and sealing that nomination. All of these candidates, let's not forget, have to get through the gorilla. And that is former President Donald Trump. I don't see them doing that. Ben Dieter, listen to him every day on the Todd Starnes Show and on KWAM, the Mighty 990. Ben, uh, it's great to have you. I hope we can do this again soon. And uh, whenever anything's happening out there in Tennessee that we should be aware of, uh, please, you're up early anyway. Just uh, give us a call. It was a pleasure, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Ben Dieter. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're certainly welcome to. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
everybody. This is the other side of midnight. I am your friendly voice of reason, Frank Morano, the man who always tells it like it is. Well, my fellow seekers of wisdom and champions of discourse, pre- prepare yourselves as we embark on a voyage into the tempestuous sea of a legal conundrum that has been making waves. Picture this. A student's fervent desire to drape themselves in the vibrant hues of a Mexican-American flag sash during their triumphant high school graduation. But hold on to your sombreros. Because this isn't merely a clash of fabrics, it's a symphony of rights and responsibilities. The tale unfolds thusly. A young soul yearned to unfurl that flag sash to display their cultural tapestry with gusto. Yet, as the curtain rose, the school district's hand was played Decreeing that such a sash could waltz afoul of their dress code, the ensuing legal ballet was both thrilling and dramatic, culminating in a pronouncement from the judge's hallowed chamber, a ruling that resounded in favor of the school district. But, dear listeners, before you spiral into gasps and bewilderment, let us dissect this theatrical performance. Here's what happened. A high school senior by the name of Naomi Peña Villasano. She sued a Colorado school district after she was told she could not wear a sash celebrating her heritage at her commencement ceremony. And a federal judge upheld a decision prohibiting this student from wearing a sash honoring her Mexican-American heritage. And in the lawsuit, which was filed in the U.S. District Court for the District of Colorado, lawyers for this student said she was told by the school's prince, the school principal's secretary that she could not wear the sash because, quote, allowing that regalia would open too many doors. Lawyers for the young woman wrote in the suit that the sash is a reminder that not all Mexican-Americans, including her parents, have the opportunity to graduate from high school and to walk across a graduation stage. They added, by wearing the sash, Naomi represents her family, her identity as a Mexican-American, and her culture doing this important occasion. Well, let me ask you, do you think a student graduating should be able to wear a sash celebrating their culture? whether it's Mexican, Italian, Greek, black, um, Jewish, whatever the case may be, should you be able to wear a sash at graduation celebrating your culture? Um, Well, the judge said she couldn't. And so Miss Villasano flouted the ruling anyway and wore the sash to graduation anyway. And she told the post-independent of Glenwood Springs, Colorado, Always stand up for what you believe in. And despite previous warnings, no one attempted to stop her from receiving her diploma. The sash is designed in the in the style of a serape. It was a gift from her older brother, and it represents the U.S. and Mexican flags. 
and it has the words class of 2023 embroidered on it. I have to tell you, I think this is absolutely ridiculous. You absolutely should not be able to wear a any kind of sash. I don't care what your culture is. This, as the school district told her, this does open the door to anybody that wants to put any kind of message on there. Well, can you put a uh, a gay pride sash on while you're marching across the stage? Yes. Okay. Well, can you put a Black Lives Matter sash on as you're marching across the stage? What if people are upset by that and they boo? Well, tough. Well, can you put then a Blue Lives Matter sash on your on your graduation gown as you're marching across the stage? Well, I mean, okay, let's say yes. Then uh, where does where does it end? Can you put a Ku Klux Klan sash? on your graduation gown as you're walking across the stage. So I'm glad the school district had a no-sash rule, and I am glad that the judge respected the school's wishes. I don't know, um, I don't know what, uh, I don't know what she was expecting, but I think it's a shame that she defied the federal court and the school district all because she wants to show pride in her heritage. Now, cultural heritage is a great thing. Pride in your culture is a great thing. Pride in your cultural history is a great thing. But when there's an there's basically a uniform for graduation. And if you allow people to add flair to that standard uniform, it opens the door to who knows what. So from the perspective of the legal virtuoso, this case cast its dice on the ancient board of self-expression versus institutional decorum, Uh, free speech, the jewel in our rhetorical crown, is it not? But remember, every crown has its limits, especially when poised to grace the grand stage of a graduation ceremony. The judge determined that the school's dress code was not some sort of a draconian muzzle. Instead, it was like a more like a conductor's baton, guiding the symphony of unity that such a monumentous occasion in a young person's life demands. I'm curious what you think. Do you agree with me and the school district and the judge that she should not have had that sash? 800-848-9222. If you don't, I'd love to hear why. Or do you agree with her that she did the right thing by defying the, the rules here? 800-848-9222. Let us look at the practical and the ethical. Graduation day. I, I hate graduations for my own. My own. I, mean, I know it's a big deal for a lot of people, but I find the ceremonies are too boring. Uh, they're too long. The speakers aren't great. But it is the zenith of scholastic odysseys. It's a climactic crescendo when all the students ascend to the stage of triumph. It's the time for shared glories and accomplishments. But imagine for a fleeting moment if each graduate garbed themselves in their own personal constellation. The stage would be chaos. And the ceremony would be a constellation of confusion. 
Cultural appreciation is a great thing. And we shouldn't forget that this case is not at all a damper on self-expression. It's a harmonizing tune that beckons a dance between the individual and the collective. So here's to the judge, I think, a very reasonable decision, and to the school district, the guardian of unity, in this case anyway. Let us raise our quills to salute that delicate balance between rights and responsibility, liberty and harmony. And I'd love to hear from you if you disagree. 800-848-9222, uh, 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on anything else we've covered as well. Brian Kilmeade will join me in about uh, 20 minutes. I'll get his take on the death of uh, Bregosian. We'll talk about the debate. We'll talk about Rudy Giuliani being released on $150,000 bond. And I have a few other surprise questions that uh, I'm going to throw at him. Let me begin with Kevin in Kearney, New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Yeah, Frank, I do agree with you and the judge and the school system. I think that this girl didn't even really fully want to celebrate her heritage. I think she just wanted to get her name out there and, and get this a clean. Look, we're talking about it now on the radio, right? And possibly a lawsuit, which she has as well. You know, I mean, it's nice to celebrate your heritage, but how about some of these people celebrate the American heritage? She's an American now. You know, why wouldn't you want to wear an American flag? You know, that, that's a you great know, point. Well, I mean, look, I, I saw the sash. There is the American flag represented on it. But, you know, there's an American flag presumably on the graduation stage. And in the statement that she put out, they said she um, she was at a loss of words over the judge's decision and was incredibly saddened that she could not celebrate with her family the way she wanted to. And that statement, it's to me, was so dripping with with arrogance. Why was why would a sash keep you from celebrating the way that you want to go to a graduation party, go to a graduation dinner with your parents or whomever else you want to invite and wear a giant Mexican flag for all I care. But when you're when you're inserting that into the graduation ceremony itself, it's a weird situation. Yes. Celebrate on your own. I believe that 100 percent. In my town, my high school soccer team won the championship and all the kids ran on the field with their countries, you know, of origins, flags draped around them. And my brother said to the coach, hey, where's the American flag? And he jumped down my brother's throat saying, you know, you keep your, your, your mouth shut. You know, this is their day or whatever. They could do whatever they want. And he just said, well, they should also have an American flag out. It's hard for me to root for the team now. And it's my home team, my hometown because of that. They, mm. You know, what about the American heritage? You're here now. You're in America. You know, you know I, I'm with heritage. you. I, I'm with you. Hey, great, great call, Kevin. Thank you. I'm with you. And by the way, if you disagree, I'd love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. And I feel that way. Honestly, I live in a neighborhood that is heavily populated by people of Italian descent. And I feel the same way when I pass a household or a car that has the Italian flag on it, but not the American flag. And I feel the same way, especially these days, when I pass a household or a car that has the Ukrainian flag on it, but not the American flag. And I get that, you know, Ukraine is dealing with a, a very specific crisis, a humanitarian disaster and everything else. But so are a lot of other places. And yet, you know, I, I don't see any Niger flags in my neighborhood or any Yemen flags in my neighborhood or any flags of any other countries that are in turmoil. So I, I agree with you. I mean, if you want to 
showcase other flags, that's great. But I, I think the American flag should be paramount. But I think that's, whether you agree with that or not, that's totally separate from the issue involving this graduation. It's should students be able to wear sashes that do whatever they want, that say whatever they want, that symbolize whatever they want? Answer, no. The district said it was pleased with the decision. Jennifer Bow, the superintendent, released a statement that said, and I agree with every word she said here, this is not an issue about a student's ability to express her pride in her culture and heritage. She and all her classmates have an avenue for this expression by decorating their mortar boards on their graduation caps. She could have put the Mexican-American symbolism on the mortar board, including appropriate nationalistic endorsements. That's what, that's what the statement says. I added the she could have put that on her mortar board. So this case comes amid uh, disputes elsewhere about what's protected free speech at commencement ceremonies in Oklahoma. For instance, the state legislature overrode the governor's veto of a bill allowing students to wear Native American regalia at high school and college graduations. So you can go to in Oklahoma, you can wear American Indian regalia. So you got that going for you. 800-848-9222. We'll talk with Brian Kilmeade in just a bit. Let me say hello to Steve in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. All right. And I'm glad I got on before Brian launches into his filibuster. Before I get to the debate. You know, uh, people Colorado's... say the same thing about you from time to time, Steve. Well, go right ahead. Come on. Well, you know, let's have some fun. Let's th- let's throw some red meat at the audience. I, you know, uh, you that- know what people have been asking um, about you, Steve, in the Facebook group. You know, there's all these anti-migrant rallies that Curtis is participating, that I participated in, that uh, other folks have, and folks are asking, "Are you showing up to any of these, or are you, or, or are you just commenting on the radio on them?" Anybody who questions my uh, background when it comes to the invasion of America better look at themselves in the mirror, <laughs> all right? You're taking on the Babe Ruth of the invasion of America. Young people out there, it was only me and Pat Buchanan who was talking about the invasion of America 20 years ago. That Colorado student is helping send a wrecking ball into Western civilization. And number two, Russia is run by serial killers. Remember that. Okay, the presidential debate, of course, you got the greatest and the best political analyst right here talking. It might be you. Um, first, uh, f- this is my take. I haven't said it before. I've been holding back because, remember, people are not really that interested in this. But Flor- I, this is my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think Florida it's totally meaningless want- without Trump in there, isn't it? Well, he also did something with Tucker last night that was pre-taped you know, taped and everything. But it's it's not that. It's just that people are not really totally interested in this yet. Maybe we are. We like politics. We like talking about this. But my take on this is that Florida voters want DeSantis as, the, as their governor, and they want uh, Trump in the presidency as of today, August of 2023. We don't know what's going to happen in January of 24. But remember now – DeSantis has a record in Florida where he just, he fired two leftist 
pro-criminal Florida DAs. He stopped brainwashing little school children, which to me is disgusting. And he also, they don't talk about it. He, he passed E-Verify. People don't know what that is. That identifies illegal aliens in the Florida workforce. Do you think they would do that in New York? So I don't you're on so. Team DeSantis, it sounds like. No, no, no. I'm on Team the biggest issues of the day. I want them not only spoken, but I want them dealt with. And it's up to the voters to demand that your issues get dealt with. You can't wait. Uh, like in the Facebook now, you can't wait 25 years later and start worrying about illegal immigration when it shows up in your back backyard. Listen, this is what happened to California for the last 40 years. That's why it's gone. It's for the Democrats. Actually, the poll, the first poll they did was in California, and President Biden is getting 100 percent of the anchor baby vote. That's anchor babies that were born 18 plus years ago. Like it? I, thank you, Steve. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Manhattan. Hello, Robert. Good morning, Frank. I want to switch back to the TV. <laughs> sure. Sorry, sorry, Steve. You, uh, you do your own thing. You march to your own drum. I got a couple of uh, things that I didn't like what some of the networks did. I'll give you two quick. I did not like the sci-fi channel giving us what I thought was one of the worst shows ever, the original Battlestar Galactica. I don't mean the iteration from a few years ago. I mean the one with Lauren Green. Well, I don't understand. I didn't like, you didn't like – I mean, those were reruns. You didn't like that they no, put that on? No, I didn't like the original. Right. Now, so the sec- you didn't like yeah. the original? No. And the second thing I wish – well, but I wish Robert, Fox would, I, so you didn't like that they no, put no, that... No, 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 I know. I didn't like it. I thought it was an awful show. Right, okay. So airing okay. it was the mistake, in your view. Yes, airing it was a mistake. Okay, mm-hmm. second thing, Trek Universe, two quick things. I didn't like Next Generation getting rid of Ambassador Quaylar, uh, 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 Worf's mate, and I certainly didn't like DS9 getting rid of Jadzia Dax. I didn't like that at all. And my third is a sports thing. I don't know if you know this, but every year for a number of years, Fox, the night before the Super Bowl, used to show in its entirety the entire adventure when Bullwinkle Moose became quarterback for Westamati U. And <laughs> I thought that is one of the funniest adventures they ever did. And boy, considering some of the recent Super Bowls they've had, I wish Fox would bring that back. Well, that's interesting. You know, um, one, I completely disagree on the Battlestar Galactica front. I mean, the original 1979 show I thought was really great, a little campy at times. But the premise of that show and the feature length pilot of that show I thought was great. And I thought it was such a creative premise and uh, look, th- th- that's one of those shows where the remake, or the revival, reimagining, whatever they call it, was better than the original, no question. But the original was a trailblazer, and there was some wonderful acting on that show. People like Lorne Green and Richard Hatch and Dirk Benedict, Jane Seymour. I thought it was wonderful. Uh, again, there's some episodes that are very lame, almost Batman and Robin-like, but the episodes with Lloyd Bridges, I, it's magic. It's magic. The episode with Fred Astaire, terrific. I mean, I thought it was a great show. And the special effects were incredibly, incredibly ahead of their time for television in the 1970s. I mean, they got John Dykstra from Star Wars to do the uh, to the do the special effects. So I thought it was great. Um, as far as Jed Zia Dax on Deep Space Nine, she was a great part of that show, much better than the next Dax. 
However, that was her decision to leave. Now, you could say that was a bad decision, but that was her decision. You said DS9 got rid of Jed Z attacks. They didn't get rid of her. She left the actress, Terry Farrell, who, if memory serves, is actually married to uh, Leonard Nimoy's son. I And I believe I'm right about that. But Terry Farrell left that show to do a show called Becker with Ted Danson. And uh, I don't think she was into all the techno babble that you need to master to be an actor on that show. She wanted kind of a simple show, which is what Becker was. Uh, I agree with you. It was a mistake for her to to leave to leave them no doubt about it all right let me say hello to larry on long island hello larry frank two quickies the greatest and biggest tv debacle for me was when the geniuses at monday night football decided to add a comedian to their three-man booth I want to watch a football game, and I'm and I'm and I'm listening to the comedy seller Shticklock. You're talking about when they so, added Dennis Miller. Yes, it was ridiculous. Number two, I watched about 15 minutes of the debate last night, and I was reminded why I don't watch preseason football. <laughs> That's a good one. And you know what? That is the perfect analogy to what this was. This was a preseason game where none of the starters are actually going to be uh, starting in in the regular game. That is a wonderful, uh, wonderful analogy, Larry. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Michael in Manhattan has been holding a while. Hello, Michael. Michael! All right, Michael's lost his opportunity. Chris in the Catskills. Hey, Chris. Good morning, Frank. The two salient points I would take out of the debate was that Nikki Haley was clearly auditioning for president in 2028 and that Rami Swamy was auditioning for vice president. And if you look at his rhetorical argumentative style and delivery style, he got into arguments with nearly every other candidate a la like Trump uh, back in 2016. And I think that he did a good job. If Trump is looking for a vice presidential candidate, I think that he definitely is on Trump's radar. And Nikki Haley, she made an interesting comment breaking down the economy, and she distanced herself from all the other candidates. She spoke about how the budget deficit grew, and she had the specific figure number under the Trump regime. And I think she clearly is looking forward to 2028. She thinks maybe the Democrats will win. It's going to be an open seat no matter who wins. And she also couched the issue that I'm pro-life. But women who get abortions aren't going to be thrown in prison or go to jail or get arrested. So she couched that issue in a way where it was very clever how she straddled the fence and said that I'm pro-life in a way that would right. offend that, people without that are without embracing a, a national abortion ban. Yeah, that's a that's a, a, a fair analysis, Chris. I must say, you know, on the subject of Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, my friend Joe Borelli tweeted or whatever they call what you used to tweet, they call posted, posted on X. He posted, uh, I don't know whether I want to punch Vivek or vote for him for president. And then in response to somebody else said, what if I want to do both 
And I kind of felt that, right, with Ramaswamy. He's got that kind of uh, ultra-slick arrogance that you feel like he just needs a slap. But then other times you feel like, all right, you know, that guy's right on. All right, 800-848-9222, We're going to talk with uh, Brian Kilmeade in just a minute. Um, in fact, you know, we'll get to some stories around the, the world that have kind of caught my attention, and then we'll uh, we'll chat with Brian Kilmeade. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is uh, a birthday bumper music selection by one of our most devoted listeners, Dr. Joel Ryder, who is getting so many letters to the editor in the newspaper these days that uh, they're actually going to start putting him on the masthead of all the newspapers that he's writing to because when he gets these letters printed, they the circulation just surges. So happy birthday to him. We appreciate his listenership to this program. And uh, certainly his contributions to our Facebook group. We're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade in a minute. But first, there are a few headlines I wanted to bring to your attention. A huge brain reading breakthrough advances in digitized surgical implants paired with brainwave reading artificial intelligence have allowed two speech paralyzed patients to communicate with unprecedented abilities, according to a pair of studies that was published yesterday. And while similar brain-computer interfaces have previously provided some ability to communicate for patients with brain or spinal injuries, uh, Dr. Norman Doidge deals with that in the book, uh, The Brain That Changes Itself. Researchers say the new platforms approach fluid speech, and these two patients are able to speak at a rate of 70 words per minute, slightly less than half the rate of a normal conversation, or three times as quickly as Al Gore speaks. And to achieve the breakthrough, a machine learning model was trained by comparing electrical signals in the brain to a large set of more than 125,000 words. The information was then vocalized via speech-to-text software. Scientists say the results suggest a very realistic path forward for restoring speech to paralyze patients in the relatively near future. I've always thought about that. What happens if I'm paralyzed and can't speak? What if I ended up like uh, Stephen Hawking or uh, Captain Pike in that Star Trek episode, The Menagerie? I don't want one of those things where all I could do is press a button for yes or no. And Japan will begin releasing over a million tons of treated wastewater today 
from the compromised Fukushima nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean. The plant was destroyed by the tsunami caused by the earthquake back in March of 2011, the country's strongest recorded seismic event, which claimed nearly 20,000 lives. And a desperate search is underway after an airplane that took off from a Florida airport on Saturday disappeared while flying over, you guessed it, the fabled Bermuda Triangle, famous for mysteriously swallowing up aircraft and ships for decades. The Coast Guard says a Cessna 402 with one person aboard left the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport and was last seen about 17 miles west of Eleuthera Island. The plane is possibly downed and the person is feared dead. So hopefully they can find this plane and maybe even uh, rescue this person, one hopes. And finally, looking into someone's eyes could tell doctors whether they're going to develop a potentially devastating neurological disease. That's according to new research. Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative disease that destroys the ability of the brain to produce dopamine. Dopamine is uh, the most well-known as a uh, chemical associated with feelings of pleasure, but it's also critical for the brain's ability to control movement. People with Parkinson's lack brain cells that produce dopamine, which leads to the shakiness, the stiffness that we've seen with Michael J. Fox and uh, people like Muhammad Ali. And uh, Parkinson's is typically diagnosed with a neurological exam and by evaluating a patient's medical history. But this eye scan, which again could be a byproduct of AI, might predict Parkinson's disease seven years earlier than the models that they're currently using now to diagnose Parkinson's disease, which I think is which I think is great. All right. Um Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. If you want to comment on uh, anything we have discussed, that's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. In addition to it being uh, Joel Ryder's birthday today, there's another great man celebrating his birthday today. The uh, the one and only Steve Pura. And if that name sounds familiar, it is not only because he is an energetic and vivacious northeasterner who has the misfortune of being a Met fan. But uh, that is because he is the father of one of our favorite listeners and someone that has distinguished herself in short order as one of our favorite callers, also a, a gifted musician in her own right. And uh, according to her Instagram, you know, certainly not uh, not too hard on the eyes either. The one and only Lisa Pure. Lisa, it's your father's birthday today. Happy birthday to him. Hey, yes, thank you, thank you. But actually, you know, it's funny. I sent you that picture of my dad. He was wearing a Yan- uh, a Mets hat, but he's actually a Yankees fan. Ah, but, well, then I take back a third of what I said. Different yeah. occasions. Yeah, I take Very back. funny, though. But I guess, you know, he, my my dad, he was a, um, a, a big uh, gym teacher, coach, ref, and he had a scholarship to University of Bridgeport. So he's a big baseball guy. So Wonderful. it doesn't matter what type of thing. But thank you for shouting him out. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm sure he'll be happy to hear that in the morning. Wonderful. Well, good. What are you guys doing for his birthday? Anything? My sister's going to have everybody over tonight. And um, I'm doing a little, uh, well, I can't say it on the air. 
on the radio. All right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I well, have other. Oh, I have another plan for Poppy on on the weekend right. that he doesn't know yet. All right. Well, that's <laughs> nice that you're surprising him. Very nice. Well, good. I hope you guys have fun. I hope all of his uh, birthday wishes come true. Thank you. God bless. All right. Thank you, Lisa. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk County. He's been patiently holding. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. Uh, two sci-fi TV shows that were very good, especially The Outer Limits and also Space 1999. Yeah, I uh, I love both of those. I thought both of those. But what what's your comment about them? Well, they're they could have gone on a, a while longer, especially the Outer Limits. It was almost like on the level of the Twilight Zone. Yeah, I agree with you. But, um, you know, the Outer Limits was on for, I don't know, how many seasons? Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. It was only on for two seasons. You're right. I, I'll go I'll go with you on that. I think you're right on that. And they did bring it back in uh, a few other different incarnations, some of which were pretty decent. Yeah, dear. They had the the second run of that, for lack of a better description. Yeah, no, there were some good episodes there. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate that. Even, you know, I think by my count, after the original The Twilight Zone, which is really my favorite, there were one, two, three other, at least, three other iterations of The Twilight Zone as a TV series, not including the motion picture that came out. And I thought some of them were pretty good. All right, uh, we can't get a hold of Brian Kilmeade. He was probably out late partying in um, in Milwaukee last night because uh, it, is a, it is a jurisdiction known for its beer. I anticipated this. So I texted him yesterday, and I said, I texted him at 6, six o'clock Eastern, right? I said, hi, Brian. I'm not sure if you have a different schedule or different commitments because of the debate tonight. Let me know if, uh, you know, 435 still works for you. But, um, yeah. Oh, all right. But anyway, uh, so we're trying to get a hold of him. And he says, I could try. It should work. And then I said, we could skip if you need. No big deal. He says, let's try. It should work. And sure enough, true to his word, it has indeed Worked, Brian, I thought for sure there was no shot I was seeing you today. Well, you're, you're not going to see me, Frank. Um, <laughs> so that's bad news. Uh, but I, I'm trying to, to work it all in here. We're an hour. Uh, it's an hour earlier. So it's 343 here. Oh, my uh, goodness. Well, morning. you're a trooper. You're a trooper. So I'm trying to do the math and trying to figure it out. But I, I, I get I'll be it. heading out to the diner shortly. I, I get it. All right. Well, I, I won't uh, I won't keep you. Give us uh, – Give. I know you're going to do three hours on television, another three hours of radio where you're going to be answering this question. But give me the, the Reader's Digest version to your answer in terms of uh, what your takeaway from the debate was or your key takeaways. Well, I mean, Ron DeSantis didn't fumble. Uh, I think maybe seven out of ten. Um, I, I, you know, there was more most pressure on him. Period. I thought, you know, Tim Scott was not happy by his performance. I watched him do Hannity and kind of storm out, and that's unusual for him. Chris Christie didn't show up to the spin room. I thought he had his moments. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, you know, the last guy to say he had a strange name and skinny arms is Barack Obama. And he said, you like to chat GBT um, uh, candidate. I thought that was a good good moment for him going after Vivek. But Vivek, uh, whether you love him or hate him, was the center of attention most of the time. 
Mike Pence showed much, much more fire than I ever saw before. Turns out in total time, he had more time than anybody else. Talked more than anybody else. I didn't expect that. But to me, Nikki Haley was was the biggest. Uh, I thought she was the best. And I think she destroyed Vivek on his ridiculous foreign policy that isn't well thought out. And as an Ivy Leaguer with his background, I can't believe he even believes the stuff he said. But uh, in the Republican Party, as you know, uh, they're like, well, we don't want to be in any wars. Oh, we're tired of giving money overseas. As if the border has anything to do with uh, money we use for foreign policy. Not, and everybody knows that. that's a little disappointing about Governor DeSantis. He said, well, you know, I wanted to secure our border, not worry about – excuse me. Ukraine border has nothing to do with our border. We have a president of the United States that absolutely is destroying every major city and all the border states because he's acting irresponsibly in refusing to use the wall or, or, uh, or stop the influx and pressure other nations to do the same. So I just thought that that was a little odd, and this, this story is still Donald Trump. I don't think anyone proved themselves uh, capable of closing a 40-point gap, a 30- to 40-point gap to you. No, I don't. And, uh, you know, one listener a little earlier made the analogy to preseason football games. And now we're actually in preseason football games. And the people that have Jets or Giants season tickets, uh, tickets, they're begging people to take these uh, season tickets off their hands to the preseason football game. And that all is almost how it felt like. Not the, the key player, the one that's most likely to be on the main stage, wasn't present. So it, it almost felt a little bit like that. Yeah. Uh, by the way, go to the Red Bull game. They're going to be hosting Messi uh, over Red Bull Arena. Much better football, worldwide football, than the Jets-Giants exhibition <laughs> game. Uh, that'll be Saturday night at 730. I think I'll be out there, by the way. Uh, yeah, I mean, no one did that. And Trump, uh, Trump was out there on Truth Social putting those words out. And, you know, Mike Pence says he missed an opportunity. I'm watching Ari Fleischer say there's no way he should have went. And Trey Gowdy had a great line. He said, if you want him on the stage— uh, start getting close. You can't give a 40-point lead and get mad at him for not showing up because it's not in his interest to show up. For him, if I was him, I would uh, I would have probably shown up because he would have been the center of attention again. He's got to start impressing people that he was not able to get last time. And I also think that 20 million people seeing you is never a bad thing, it being that most others, those people are going to be looking at him today getting – arrested in Georgia. So Donald Trump is on everybody's mind. He'll he'll take we'll do the aftermath report, the after action report on our shows, and then Donald Trump will own Thursday right. and Friday and probably the Sunday shows. Right. Um uh, wanna pick your brain on one or two other items before you go into diner mode. Do you eat by the way when you're at these diners or are you so busy doing the no, the, no, no eating? No, I, I mean I just don't think I should be eating people's ears. Uh, I'm a, I'm somebody who don't doesn't like when people chew gum. I don't like, and then I'm thinking to myself, if you're eating and people have their TVs on or their AirPods on, I'm eating in their ear. I think it's rude. Uh, number two is I don't want stuff stuck in my teeth. Uh, and number three is I'm there to work. So what do you do? I mean, obviously you need some sort of sustenance. Do you have a quick protein shake or something? We are talking about my nutrition. This is fascinating. Yeah, well, people are interested in this stuff. I mean, it's a big news day, sure. Terry Funk died. We know that. We'll get to that. But the um, the the do you, how do, do how do you get nutrition in the morning when you do one of these live remotes? I got. Uh, I'm gonna show you. Let me see. Is it somewhere? 
I have um, this is a meal replacement. It's a plant-based protein, organic plant-based protein. It doesn't taste great, but it fills you up. But it's a shake or a bar? Um, It's powder that I mix with water and shake it or I find a spoon, and I'll just really rigorously stir it. Oh, okay. Well, so I'm, uh, my questions are answered. All right. I have to ask you about this. The uh, head of the Wagner group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, there's a long list of people that would have liked this guy dead. I probably at the top of the list is Putin, but right beneath him is probably Zelensky. Then you have all the African leaders that he's been, he's been working to topple. Probably a lot of people in the United States intelligence apparatus. Uh, any doubt in your mind that Prigozhin was killed and that this wasn't an accident no doubt uh and no no one said he has not been killed so i assume he's been killed it's unbelievable too that they would just shoot him out of the sky and because they had a shot at him earlier i mean the guy was leaving moscow and it was so weird that vladimir putin never really said anything bad about him just talked about his challenges and by the way ran to st petersburg when he thought moscow was under attack great courage there isn't he uh so now you have the Wagner Group, which was making progress for the evil regime of Russia in Africa, now without a leader and now without a financer. So that, that benefits us in the short term, but sooner or later there will be another para, uh, paramilitary group out there. But you know, Russia is in disarray. Don't anyone kid you. Also, General Keane was hitting me with some information. There was a breakthrough yesterday in the Ukraine on their front lines, and what, what feeds into your debate loop is that the people who are for and say this is necessary to help Ukraine defend itself are upset that they they seem to be on the same size as Joe Biden, who screws up everything. And again, he's not even giving demining equipment, has not delivered one tank, has not trained one pilot, has not provided any attackums, let alone just maybe 50. It's the U.K. and Sweden that are doing all this. So you half-ass it. Say, well, look at all we're doing. And now people say, why are you giving anything? Instead of just giving them enough to be successful and then turning around saying, listen, we got to back these people. Instead, they half-ass the support, and it goes on. And then the critics say, what did I tell you? We have a long, grinding war again, as opposed to the Ukrainians fighting like, uh, like warriors, beating our number one enemy, as Nikki Haley said last night, for 3% of our military budget. We are cutting – we're watching the – uh, number one, number two military being cut down before our eyes and totally distracted. The uh, other big story that people are going to be uh, talking about is these developments in the uh, in this in the Trump case. A Mar-a-Lago employee fired a lawyer that was being paid for by Donald Trump's PAC and apparently has become a cooperator and taken back what he said was false testimony in this uh, documents case. This is, I mean, it gets dizzying trying to keep track of all these cases, but this is very separate from the Georgia case, which I'm going to ask you about in a second. How do, how significant do you think this is, the fact that this fellow is now turning state's evidence? It doesn't look good that they're going to say a Mar-a-Lago worker, of course, that go after the landscapers. They are the problem in America. So they um, so you're going to get have this guy you know, got different lawyers and it's going to say that um, going to say that he was uh, by NADA the the body man of uh, former president the president himself told him to move around documents so that's going to fill into the case but that's again Frank it's a snapshot 
a snapshot of the case, guess where we find this out? Jack Smith's side. When's the last time a Robert Hur side leaked out? Have we heard anything about Donald Trump's defense? Not a word, because they're working on his defense. They're not trying to be part of the talk show world. They're not trying to be part of the 24 news cycle. Now, I don't know Donald Trump's response to it, but next week I'm supposed to interview uh, Trump for the radio, and I'll have it for Wednesday. Uh, so I'm going to ask him that. And, you know, but he's not in his, his defense. His answer to me is, Brian, should be, Brian, I, I am, uh, you know, I'm not supposed to comment on the case. But what do you think he will do? He's going to comment on the case when asked, almost baiting him. But Robert Hurt reportedly has asked President Biden for an interview, and President Biden hasn't gotten back to him. Isn't that a little different than a raid on Mar-a-Lago when the president was in New Jersey? So, I mean, the the dichotomy is unbelievable. But I also say uh, uh, I interviewed Victor Shokin, the famed prosecutor that President Vice President Biden fired, and no one's really talked to since he was fired in Ukraine. I talked to him in Ukraine. It was so explosive, they made me hold it for a week. Because the White House has to respond first. So I've got to get the White wow. House to respond. To. So I think you guys are going to enjoy that. And please, I know people are fatigued by the Hunter story, but everything that we've been saying for the last two years, it's all coming out. And you have people like CNN and The Washington Post reporting uh, that, that how deep uh, Hunter Biden is involved in this and Joe's implicated and calling for a thorough investigation. So I never thought we were going to see this day, but we're seeing it. All right, Brian, we're going to have to uh, leave it there. Uh, catch Brian on Fox and Friends from a diner where he will not be eating. And then on uh, radio where he has a uh, star-studded lineup of guests, including Mark Penn, Nicole Ambrose, uh, and uh, Mark Thiessen. And uh, it's certainly going to be really great. Brian, and, I know. And And, oh, you can't forget that one. You can't forget that one. Uh, he's uh, kind of a big deal. Brian, thank you as always. I appreciate you getting up even earlier than usual. All right, Frank, stay within yourself. Thank you, the great Brian Kilmeade. Hey, if you want to be heard for 15 seconds, you can do so. 800-848-9222. straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Aggressive progressives singing the other side of midnight. A great, great tune. All right. If you'd like to be heard for 15 seconds, uh, you can start queuing up at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. As part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Jerry! 
Fanny George Wallace Willis, the prosecutor in Georgia, standing in a schoolhouse doors to block MAGA from voting. She is also putting people on trial like the Scottsboro 13. That's what the 19 people look like. It's a Russell. Happy 63rd birthday, Cal Ripken Jr. Go Orioles and go Donald Trump. Rocco. Yes, hello, Frank and friends out there. You missed the greatest blunder of all time, the Heidi Bowl. When the Jets played the Raiders in November of 68, they cut away to the movie Heidi with the score, Jets winning, Raiders losing. The Rusty. Yeah, tell Sid, you better watch out. His mother might be on the FBI list. And get ready to that windbag from Staten Island, Peter King. Mike. 62, a proven leader, Alan West for president. Jim. You have a good show. You're a jerk off. You're a Fred. Hey, Frank, little Johnny disappointed his teacher while learning curses. He only masters F and U. Neil. It's been seven years since I met you to watch the first Donald Trump debate. Where the heck is seven years going, Frank? <laughs> That's quite a question. All right. For the rest of you that we didn't get to, uh, tune in tomorrow. And uh, tomorrow we got some fun stuff planned, including Ask Frank Anything. So start thinking of good questions. Frank Moreno, good day.